The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. So welcome to episode 46 of the Cinematography Podcast, and we have a great one for you with a legendary cinematographer. In, in, indeed we Holy do. Holy crap. This uh, guy uh, was a, a huge get. I'm very excited. He was recommended to us by our other guest, Tony Libertori, uh, the storyboard artist who is good friends with the man who you already know his name is Don Morgan because it says it on the episode. That's right. There's no use in us being coy. You know exactly who you're in for uh coming into this thing but before we get to don morgan's interview i think we should continue with this uh well-regarded little trend that we've got going right now which is talking about something that is sort of maybe uh controversial or a topic mm-hmm. or business related ben uh, uh there there was an interesting quote from uh rachel morrison who's up at the toronto film festival right now friend of the show rachel morrison she uh was lamenting the lack of certain types of projects that hollywood doesn't do anymore including like the hundred million dollar drama is, are, is there a type of movie there or TV show or something that you wish that Hollywood still made? Well, uh, I, I think that that's been kind of a trend that's been going uh, for a long time where sort of the middle class of those movies, I don't know that a $100 million version of anything would be considered the middle class. I would limit personally more like the $20 million character-driven drama slash comedy uh, or you know genre film that kind of... F- kind of walks between those lines and you see them every now and then like uh moon that came out several oh yeah ago. moon's great yeah yeah, yeah. a little I mean, quirky slightly maybe a little offbeat yeah, with sam rockwell and it's uh, you know a really a really solid little movie you don't you never saw a lot of those kinds of movies i mean the thing about what uh rachel is saying as i recall from our interview with her um you know she she loved making something like black panther but i think that the first love of her life are character driven stories like the one she did with mudbound sure um and uh you know her work with uh with ryan coogler uh comes out of um uh i'm i'm blanking on the name of the movie uh it's fruitvale station fruitvale station thank you i apologize uh rachel for forgetting the name <laughs> of for momentarily having a brain fart yes. i mean uh, it's, yeah. it's an excellent it's, a, it's an welcome, amazing movie welcome to your 40s <laughs> i'm almost done with them <laughs> anyway as cool as it is to see ryan coogler make uh, a big movie like black panther how cool would it be to see ryan coogler make in you know an 80 million dollar you know character story you know with giant movie stars and and all the all the production value and accoutrement that you get for something like that, but telling a story that's just a great story or a great character or, or whatever. And, you know, a lot of the, like the old Brian De Palma movies, like a Carlito's way, those kinds of movies, you just don't see them as much anymore. You know, we, we were just talking uh, off mic before this started about uh, Jonathan Demi's something wild. I mean, yeah. you, you really don't see anything. Well, like- and, and I could speak in a language made of nothing but Silence of the Lambs quotes because it is probably <laughs> my favorite movie ever made, uh, if not my favorite. Certainly, She puts the lotion in the basket. Certainly, certainly in the top like three to five movies I've ever seen in my life. But I kind of feel like after it won all the Oscars, we lost the Jonathan Demme that made something wild and married mm. to the mob and, and exchanged him for another filmmaker who made like Philadelphia. 
Philadelphia and beloved and you know I and, and you know unfortunately he passed away two years ago and I I love the man's body of work and I love you know the before and the after I feel like you know Martin Scorsese who's still still making them still still he's got a new mob movie with Robert De Niro and mm, Al Pacino and Joe true. Pesci coming out in a couple of months but I sort of feel like after filmmakers are deemed you know important with a capital I by the industry sometimes the uh the the timbre of their work changes a little bit but you know you get a movie like goodfellas today part of that might be just the growth of directors and filmmakers themselves maybe they're not the same person they they change over time but but i almost feel like the coen brothers are almost not exactly making you know the coen brothers style movies now today i feel like they've had disagree you disagree you think that that everything they're doing today is just as coen brothers as uh raising arizona I think that the Coen brothers, the 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 Coen brothers are the exception that proved the rule of what Rachel is talking about, hmm. because I feel like the Coen brothers reinvent themselves with every movie, and there are similarities that run through all their films. Uh, you could look at, uh, I think, Hail Caesar was their most recent film, hmm. and it's a weird, quirky ass, weird ass comedy. And I can think back to 1994's Hudsucker Proxy weird quirky ass weird ass comedy those they they circle around different genres and they make movies that defy your expectations of them and they've always done it i remember going to see the big lebowski which was their first movie after fargo with people who were extremely disappointed that it wasn't more like fargo okay well i definitely feel like there's been a shift in in the cohen's work i'm gonna i'm gonna disagree with you uh and I don't think it's necessarily necessarily a shift for the the worse uh, for the, you know, I think that they I think inside Llewellyn Davis I think a serious man Ballad of Buster Scruggs oh, might Ballad of Buster Scruggs is their most recent film. Sorry. Okay, so Ballad of Buster Scruggs to me feels like a little bit more of a throwback to classic Coen Brothers, but uh, Serious Man and Ballad inside of Buster Scruggs and and Oh Brother Where Art Thou are uh, you think they're cut from the same cloth? Uh, I mean, like the same people made those two movies for sure. Hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, I think that that sort of like slightly over the top style of earlier Coen brothers is not necessarily the same as slightly over the top Coen brothers today. I would argue that what you are talking about is not the Coen brothers, but it is Barry Sonnenfeld who shot their first three movies. I I disagree. No, because I'm thinking of a, I'm thinking of other movies like, um, like big Lebowski, which is not, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go too far down this tangent, but I feel like the, the the movies that they're making today are not the same sort of movies they were making before. And I feel like they're still uh, there's still Coen Brothers movies, but it's maybe it's a more matured version of them. Or it's well, a, I mean, that's, it's unavoidable that as human beings, they're growing up and changing. But I feel like the Coen, there are very few filmmakers, in my opinion, who show up with a vision fully formed, which kind of brings us back to our topic a little bit. Another one being uh, Quentin Tarantino, who I feel like you go back and watch Reservoir Dogs and it feels, you know, I mean, there are things about it that don't that you wouldn't see in a movie today. Hush your mouth. <laughs> I love Reser- <laughs> I love Reservoir Dogs. It's, it's still my favorite Quentin movie. So. Uh, I think my favorite one is probably Jackie Brown. But oh, yeah. Quentin Tarantino is the kind of person who's making the movies that we're talking about. He's not making giant 200 million dollar superhero movies, although it, it is rumored that he might not rumored. He has spoken out loud about possibly making a Star Trek movie. Yeah, I heard that. So yeah, that, that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, def, definitely would be interesting. <laughs> well, well, OK, so the the thing that I feel like Hollywood's not making right now is actually there's a lot of TV series. I, people keep talking about peak TV, but I feel like sort of the TV series that are happening today are not necessarily the TV series of your 
Um, yeah, we don't have Alf anymore. I mean, we really need Alf. Well, you know, and and I, I'm not saying that we we don't need Alf. Actually, I mean, they're, they're I'm gonna, Alf is I'm beloved. Go on, a, on a limb and say we just don't need Alf. <laughs> I'm, we're good. Alf Alf was beloved, and a lot, uh, millions and millions of people watched Alf. Sure. So, was it Permanent Midnight, written by the same uh, same Jerry Stahl, uh, yeah. was a writer on Alf. Yeah, yeah. I, I I do love the Alf like character while he yeah. was a heroin addict. That's that's right. Yeah, it's a dark movie. He was Fun. fired, I believe, from yeah. from writing on Alf. He didn't create Alf though. But oh, he, uh, go on. Yes. Okay. So, but uh, there's a Netflix series right now, which actually I think is like a BBC or Channel Four actually produced and Netflix co opted called Dairy Girls. Mm-hmm. D-E-R-R-Y, and it all takes place in uh, North northern London uh, during the Troubles, sort of in the late 1980s. It's a period piece, early 1990s, and it's got like little elements of Coen Brothers. I have to watch it with the subtitles on so I can actually understand what's being said, mm-hmm. although it turns out I'm understanding exactly what's being said. I just don't understand all the Irish slang. And it turns mm-hmm. out there's all these like cultural references and stuff that's in there. But as I'm watching this, this slightly over the top, sort of broad comedy, something that might feel like it's multi-camera, but it's a single camera show. Uh, that's the type of thing that Hollywood does not make anymore. And I wish they did because it's funny as hell and it's a little bit filthy and it's a little bit wonderful. Well, I think that it, it takes uh, the right hand to come along who's got that ability and also has the ability to sell a show. One thing that I've talked about with uh, some of my friends who uh, are trying to sell television shows is like, and, and I think that it, it's a conversation we all have, which is like, okay, if it's all peak TV, like, aren't they going to eventually run out of qualified showrunners and have to dip into uh, us? The, the second string. Yeah. <laughs> like, not even, we're not even the second string. Third we're, string. We're like, yeah, we're like. 18th l- string. Little League. Okay. Um, but eventually they're going to, ha- they're going to run out of all the people, who, like all the people who have been making TV, you know, all the people who were making TV 10 years ago, uh, they can't all physically do it all, but apparently. <laughs> because what they're doing is they're having the same they're having showrunners run multiple shows at the same time which sounds serious crash and burn to me um but uh give them the opportunity there's some people out there who'll just say yes yeah well i, I mean i'm uh, also i'm sure that the the money is amazing but it's like hard to find people who are like super qualified to run uh, six shows yeah four and, shows and yet uh, you know probably what they're doing is they're you know they're not they obviously nobody can be on a tv series full-time while they're on six other tv series full-time i think jj abrams can <laughs> I think J.J. Abrams has other people who work underneath him. That, what? That, Impossible. That kinda, and I no. think that that's how a lot of these people do it. I don't actually I don't know that J.J. Abrams He's probably uh, not doing has that. been show running at all because like uh, Carlton Cuse and um, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Like Lost was run by those guys. But um, Carlton Cuse and who was the other guy? Damon Lindelof. That's right. Yeah. Well done. I uh, you pulled it out there. I've, I, I've never smoked weed in my life, and and, I <laughs> and think, that's how you were able to pull out. I think Damon it's, I think it's, right it's positively impacted my long term memory. <laughs> I, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I think that uh, that's sort of the the summary of what we're trying to talk about here is that there's plenty of work that's happening right now, but it's uh, it's more of the same. It's more of the same sort of work, even though we're at peak TV and there's one might argue some of the best work that's happening right now that uh, still the sort of quirky or offbeat stuff isn't uh, or the the high budget dramas or what what, what other genres sort of has been uh, sadly now uh, relegated to the uh, the the yesteryear that doesn't exist. Well, now. I mean, in television and movies, just trends come and go. But what what is 
sort of happened is I, I'm actually going to lament something even lower budget. And Ooh. even though it's sort of come the back, indie? but like, yeah, like the $5 million indie film where you get like, you know, Eric Stoltz to be the lead. You're, uh, you're talking about the slightly elevated indie that's got like a name in it, but the whole everything else around it's like super gritty and down and dirty. Yeah, something that's kind of like the American version of Italian neorealism. And, you, you know, you do have movies that are like ultra, ultra crazy, zany, low budget, like under $100,000, which they you usually know, don't get that Eric Stoltz, though. Yeah, well, and if they do, it's because he knows somebody. But like on a, what you have to know if you if you have never budgeted a film is if a movie's made for I'm going to say 500k or under probably nobody really made any money on it like probably the director worked on it for 3 years and made $50,000 uh total and uh you know probably all the actors worked on the low low budget um you know indie rate which I think is like 125 a day and and so you know, like you're, no, you're, you're talking about the the sort of Parker Posey era, like Days and Confused. Yeah, did, well, yeah. there was like I mean, from the late '80s, starting probably with Sex Lies and Videotape, or around that time, kick, kicking that off, shot by Walt Lloyd, who we keep wanting to bring in here. Um, <laughs> I'm convinced it'll never happen. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe Walt, come on, Walt, come on, we want you here. He's not listening. He's not. Um, but, uh, uh, sex lies and videotape kind of, you know, through the nineties, you know, you got your Darren Aronofsky's, you know, you got your Paul Thomas Anderson's, uh, you got your Allison Anders's, you've got a bunch of people who are Wes Anderson, indie superstars, all the Anderson's yeah, Anderson's and Anders, (laughs) Anders, that's true. Yeah. Anders and their sons. (laughs) Um, you know, you have. Uh, those people built up, there were a bunch of indie studios, the, um, you know, the now, uh, completely dethroned Weinstein brothers, sure. um, you know, did terrible things in the world. And honestly, I'd give up every movie that they ever put out there. If, if especially all of Harvey's misdeeds could never have been committed in the name of bringing those movies to us. However, <laughs> you had Miramax slash the Weinstein company. You had October films. You had artisan. Oh, that's right. You had, uh, you know, there, uh, you had. Uh, Fox, well, Fox Searchlight is still around, I believe. Screen Gems is still around. Propaganda, Propa- well, Propaganda, yeah, they, they were like a company, but they so so you had all these companies, and there was a movement of indie stuff that was making enough money that you could throw uh, a Richard Linkletter kind of guy on the way up before he became a huge name person. You could throw him whatever five, ten million, and I feel like we. We really don't, have, don't that. have that now. Yeah, that's a. Here's what's happening: is that the, person makes a two hundred thousand dollar movie that does well at Sundance, and then they're given $100 a hundred million dollars, a Jurassic Park sequel, yeah, or they're given a Fantastic Four movie. They're they're given these like or m- massive, massive in, in undertakings. Sure, or Ryan Johnson, where he gets Star Wars. So well, know. but Ryan Johnson, he, it's true, he did, he did some. some I, stuff I will, in, yeah. Ryan Johnson had uh, he, Looper. I mean, Looper's. Uh, nice, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he made Brick for nothing, and then he made. The Brothers Bloom, and then he made Looper. I I don't think I'm but, forgetting any movies. No, but I think he went from Looper, like then to Star Wars, then to Star Wars. But yeah. Looper had big stars in it, and it you know, Chris Willis, uh, Chris Christopher Nolan went on a sim- similar track where he made um, the following. Then he made Memento. Then he made uh, Insomnia. Then he made Batman Begins. Um, so so it's like a slow ramp up to like here's a giant studio movie. And, you know, uh, I love Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, but 
Memento is a $10 million movie that no one makes today. God, I don't even know if it was 10. I think it was around really? 10. Well, it had it had Joey Pants and Carrie Ann Moss in it and Guy Pierce. Like, I think maybe between those three, I don't know how much any money anyone makes, but I think 10, I, I had heard 10 million at the time. Well, I, if we go back a step before that, was it the following was right before Memento? I heard that was like 50,000 or something. So uh, like, the following, I think, was 25,000, and he shot one day a week for a year. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, the, you know, you don't you don't hear those stories very much anymore either. So that's well, not, I mean, I think that you do. I think that what well, there's what's no need is, to have to do that way because now when it, yeah. it's not all on film. Yeah, there's no film, and and you can do it on your DSLR. You can do it on your iPhone. In fact, you know, the uh, iPhone Pro is just announced, which you know will oh, allow you right. to do live switching between three lenses, hmm. sort of like a high tech non pivot turret lens turret on your phone, and you'll be able to shoot in 4K. And I'm like. Well, you know, not not necessarily uh, throw out your Alexa LF, but if you're making an indie film and that's what you got, you get your get yourself some Filmic Pro and make a film on that thing. Oh, I didn't didn't mean to go down this path, but uh, did you see any footage from this new phone? I saw the stuff that they showed at Apple's keynote. That's all uh, I've okay. seen. I think that, I mean, like, obviously we all use our phones for, you know, taking still pictures and, you know, we're not using we're not shooting 35 millimeter stills of our, you know, family goofing off on vacation the way we used to. Yeah. And uh, and that was a real thing. And I think that it's perfectly cool that that people will have this at their disposal. So, yeah, that conversation did sort of drift. It, uh, it sure did. But, you know, we're all we're bringing it all around to Don Morgan. So Don Morgan, again, Tony Liberatore, thank you again for recommending him. Uh, Tony uh, was the storyboard artist on the Fast and Furious movies who we had on, uh, I forget what episode number it was, but uh, he kept recommending Don and he and Don are good friends. Don shot Starman, Don shot Christine. So he shot two John Carpenter movies. That's enough for me to, to go in full on Don Morgan right there. Uh, he is a legend and uh, I'm just gonna uh, kick right to his interview right now. All right, Don Morgan. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Don Morgan, thank you so much for, for coming out. Thank you for asking me to be here. No, we could not be more excited. We've been talking about having you on here for months and months and months. And uh, uh, and I know I told you off mic, but Tony Liberatore, who we also had on here, a storyboard artist, uh, had re- has been recommending you since we started the podcast. Tony's a neighbor of mine, and uh, and he and he he's been telling me we needed to get you on. But it's like just a cursory look at your filmography. It's like you know the the things you know, the things you've seen, you know the people you've worked with. It's just it's just an amazing story. So I'm I'm going to start out with uh, my stock question, uh, which is really just to kind of get us talking about craft. So you can answer it, or even some people have told me that the very basic premise of this question is wrong. That's cool. I wonder when cinematographers read a script, if when they're reading it, if they're imagining the movie in their head, if what they're imagining is made out of composition or is it made out of lighting? And I have theories, but but first I just kind of wanted to know for you, when you're reading a script, what's the thing you see? I can tell you that my first read through, I, I get all these ideas that I think I'm going to do. Just about everybody I work with talks about the uh, importance of being prepared. I got to tell you that I hate being prepared. I like to jump off the bus and wonder what I'm going to do because I, my imagination just starts going crazy the minute I know I'm really doing it. So a lot of times, everything I've been through in rehearsals and uh, run-throughs, 
a lot of times I, I never end up with doing oh, really? anything like I thought I was going to do. So is it that you prepare and then you, when you get there, you just jettison the preparation and, and or, or do you, I mean, well, like, so what is your approach towards preparation? There's just a different energy uh, when you really are going to do it than rehearsing. And uh, I don't know what it is, but even though the actors and everybody are putting their heart into it, when you see the set and you, you're actually there, I start seeing the picture coming alive in my mind mm-hmm. in the real place. Uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, they'll run you by and show you where you're going to do stuff, but you haven't seen actors really doing it. I don't know. I just, I, I love to jump off that bus or whatever the <laughs> hell they brought me in and, and, and get to doing it. I never know how I'm going to light stuff until I start lighting it. Mm-hmm. I just never have. I've had people say, can you give us a diagram of what you're going to do? And I said, no, I can't. <laughs> I'm not a very technical guy. I, I'll tell you how I got started in the business when, whenever it's appropriate. Go for it. Tell me, how did you get in, into the business? Well, first of all, I never wanted to be a cinematographer. I mean, it never crossed my mind. I never, not that I wouldn't want to have done it. I just never thought it was in the cards. I uh, was a bad student. I have a very poor education. I had learning disabilities uh, that I just have had explained in the last few years by a a professor at a pretty well-known university back east. He says, you're a visual guy. Your whole life is visual. Hmm. And I can read, but I can't spell worth a damn. I'm just terrible at it. it. It was a hindrance for a long time. So I never went for anything that I thought took any kind of brains. I always went for, I tried to be a rodeo rider. I was born in Hollywood, California. <laughs> oh, not so you're too from many, here. Not too many rodeo cowboys, but I, you know, I bought a <laughs> cowboy hat and a belt buckle you could cook a turkey on and a <laughs> pair of cowboy boots, and I went out and, and became a professional rodeo rider. Really? Yeah, I never made any money, but I was a professional. It, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. I never start at the bottom and work my way up. I always start at the top and work my way down. It's a thing I've perfected over the years. And when I, when I was trying to ride in rodeos, I was going to the El Dorado days in Las Vegas and places where the toughest cowboys and stock and all that. And it, it certainly didn't work out. I, I, I was pretty damaged over it. And I was doing that when I was 16 years old. Whoa. And then I, I tried my hand at uh, being a race car driver, and uh, I, I was fair at that, but never had the money and the backing. So I, I, but, so you did some daredeviling right, yeah. out, right out of the gate. But what it did, what it did, I also worked in film labs. My mm-hmm. dad was an animation cameraman. He worked at Disney back in the old days, and he had a background in, in you know, working around studios and animation and stuff. He got me a job in an, a film lab. Mm-hmm. And I hated that. Which lab? Is it still around? Uh, no, the first one I worked at, it's no longer there. But Photochem is where it was at, the oh, Photochem okay. lab. But it was many, many years before Photochem. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I would work and get fired and you know, get another <laughs> job and get fired. But I was always looking for something exciting to do. You know, mm-hmm. Cut to the, the camera thing. I was hired as an animation cameraman at a place called Wally Bullock's Camera place and he um he gave me the opportunity to to be a cameraman and I got into the union I hated it just sitting there one you know it was the old days you you shot one frame at a time Mm -hmm. and turned a bunch of dials and click again another frame and 
you know, at the end of the week, you may have shot 60 feet of film or something. <laughs> we run more than that, <laughs> ch checking the camera out. When I got laid off, I ran into a guy that knew Nelson Tyler, mm -hmm. the Tyler camera mount. Oh. And I asked my dad, I said, do, do you know Nelson Tyler? The, uh, he said, yeah, so do you. You guys played together when you were little kids. And, of course, we, we never, uh, I never knew that. But anyway, I went over to Nelson's uh, shop in Van Nuys, and I told him that I was interested in uh, maybe doing some work with him. I thought hanging out of a helicopter, maybe I could like that, because <laughs> I always liked the thrill of stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Nelson said, uh, well, come on in and train, and uh, we'll see, uh, see how you do. Nelson's my kind of guy. I said, you know, I don't know much about cameras. He said, well, they're black and film runs through them, so there's not much to. And Summer gray. He gave me, yeah, but he gave me the opportunity not to not to worry about what I didn't know. What he wanted was the enthusiasm that I really had, and I gave him 110 percent all the time. And within six months, I was actually shooting. Of course, the union in those days was always after me. They said, we hear you were shooting at uh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, uh, the camera operator, back in those days, you know, 55 years ago or whatever it was, camera operators were sometimes in their 70s. And you showed them the Tyler mount and showed that they had to do everything with their fingers, zoom in, zoom out, mm -hmm. focus with your fingers. You know, it gave me an opportunity to do a lot of the, the and the union would say, we heard you were shooting down at the end. You're, you're only an assistant. And finally, the union brought me in, and they, they uh, said, you know, you, you keep getting asked to do this, so we're going to give you a pass. We're going to make you a camera operator. And uh, that's when I started shooting all the time. So you but, got into it for the thrills. Yeah. You know, I, I shot things like the Baja 1000. I, I bought a I bought a uh, Airy 2C, mm -hmm. and I would put that on the seat. And whenever we saw something that was interesting, like the Baja Thousand, if someone had crashed, I would do the aerial part of it, and then I'd have the guy land, and I'd run over and get close-ups with my little handheld camera. Mm. People would say, how in the heck did you get all that stuff? They didn't know I had a handheld with me all the time. <laughs> so, so this I, is like way before the idea of kind of the run-and-gun stuff that you see commonly today, but back then that was, you know. There was a certain amount of it, but I did Anything that no one else would do. I mean, I remember one time I was operating for a guy on a, a um, it was a figure eight race with a brand new Ford. Mm -hmm. And the Ford was supposed to win without a mark on it and everything else was crashing and burning. And the next week, the guy wanted some more footage and the cameraman wasn't available. And he said, well, let Don do it. So I showed up there and the director said, can you put a mount on the front of this? We want to go through all the wrecked cars. And I said, we don't have a mount. So I let the guy tie my feet to the, uh, and I laid on the hood and held the camera down low, and that was the mount. Like you do. Yeah. yeah. And and it was just stuff like that that I got this reputation of uh, riding bucking horses handheld. And uh, I worked on a movie called Wild Rovers, and uh, Blake Edwards was the director. Oh, wow. The camera pilot, he would just tell tell these guys, uh, he said, you know, we need a shot of a horse running wild with no bridle or anything, and a shot over its head. And and uh, my pilot said, oh, Don can do that. You know, it was whatever. <laughs> and uh, I got that shot. And nice. 
I also had a horse fall over backwards on me there in the snow, and it didn't hurt. And Anyway, that that's didn't the kind hurt. of stuff that I, I got a, a reputation of doing. Donald get you anything. So when you were doing this stuff with the like the race car kind of stuff, where was the scene? What like what was this? What was it ultimately for? Who was who was? Were, were these parts of movies? Were they the Baja Thousand was? Uh, they were trying to make uh, make a movie out of the footage that we got because there was there was movie stars that were racing in that thing at the time. Steve McQueen was in. Uh, he was in the uh, race and he mm-hmm. broke down, and I filmed the the wreck. And we landed, and I took my 2C, and I ran over, and he was walking with a Mexican woman and a bunch of kids. They were talking to him, you know, and yeah. and I filmed it, and he says, shut that goddamn thing off. Uh, you can film me when I'm racing, but not when I'm wrecked, you know. And I said, oh, okay, because I already had all the footage I needed. But... <laughs> so, I mean, like, so did they ever make a movie out of that? No. No, they couldn't get permission from the guys that were uh, Steve McQueen being one. Uh, it, it never happened. But they they used the footage. You know, it, it was shown on television, uh, just the race. You know, at yeah, different yeah. times. That's awesome. So, uh, so you know, you're talking about working as a as a camera operator on on Blake Edwards movies. How do you transition from doing kind of this Gonzo live sports kind of stuff? to working on, you know, like a big Hollywood movie with a big name Hollywood director? I really never was a camera operator. You know, I'd get a job maybe a day here and a day there doing a a grab it shot for them or extra operator. Mm -hmm. But I did very little operating on feature films. All my stuff was just, you know, commercials. Mm -hmm. I got I got into commercials. But I did a I had a fellow ask me that I I'd done some work for. He said Don, I need you to grab a shot of a bunch of young kids uh, yelling and screaming, little kids, and I, I need to to cut in between animation to these live action shots of these kids yelling and having a good time. He said, so you'll need to light it. And I said, yeah, you know, I don't know how to light stuff. And he said, get a gaffer and just, you know, uh, <laughs> I trust you to, you know, to do what you do. So I asked this guy that I knew uh, that was a gaffer, and he showed up, and he lit it for me. They turned the footage in, and, and the uh, producer said, boy, you did a fine job on that. And I, I just felt like such a fraud. Uh, the way I started, I thought, if I'm going to light, I'm going to have to be the guy that lights it if I'm going to get credit for it. Yeah. I want to know what I'm doing. And I didn't know the name of one light from another. I didn't know a 2K from a Xenon. And I yeah. knew nothing about lighting. I bought a book of 100 famous paintings. I still have it at home. Oh, nice. And I looked at those paintings, and I thought, I could duplicate that with lights. And I started doing lighting. And uh, little by little, it started getting interesting and good. And, you know, I'd be on the set, and I'd say, uh, put one of those on one of these and shine it over here. You know, I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> it, this doesn't look too big. Do that one. Little by little, I just started lighting. And I finally got a job doing a, a movie called Panache for television. Mm-hmm. It wasn't much of a movie. They shot it on the back lot at Warner Brothers in the Mexican street that was supposed to be Mexico. Yeah, And they wanted it to look like Renaissance times. And so I, I did everything real long lens outside and blew out the background. And I, I put a fog filter on, and I, these guys had long hair and they, you know, the swords and everything. 
and with the with the fog filter and the sun hitting the blades when they were fighting, it, these little flashes would come off, you know. And uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, trying to blow out the street so you didn't look. We we shot inside. I would use sixteen millimeter lens inside these little tiny rooms that were supposed to be castles, and, <laughs> and try to make it look bigger. And and when when I got done, the producer came to me and he said, "You know, it looks like Rembrandt shot this thing." He said, "It's beautiful." And you're like, as a matter of fact, this is the Rembrandt painting that I had emulated everything. Well, it wasn't too far from wrong. Uh, I tried to make uh, you know the sources all real. I uh, would do stuff near fires, you know, and, and use a flicker generator and make it look like it was flickering on their face. And that's that's how I got started. Okay, so I'm going to back up a little bit here, though, because I think that your exercise in, in uh, recreating these paintings, that's an amazing idea. And I'm sure they probably do something like that at film schools or whatever, but I've never heard anyone talk about it. And you just decided, you just up and did it. Now, were you shooting it on motion picture film? Were you shooting still photographs to emulate it? No. It was film, film. Like, like you were shooting motion picture film. Take me through like, you know, uh, a, a little bit of like what your thought process was that made you come up with that idea in the first place, but also like how you went about, how did you, how did you go about doing that? Like that was how you learned how to light. But you, like you said, you didn't really even know what the lighting instruments themselves were yet. First of all, like I said, I felt like a fraud because the guy lit that set and I wanted, yeah. I wanted to learn something and I wasn't around you know, doing aerial stuff, I was never around while they're lighting. You know, they brought me in to do certain things, and then I'm out of there. Yeah. So I, I really, I, I, I didn't come up through the ranks the way uh, 90% of the people in Hollywood were coming up. You know, most guys got a job as a second assistant or a loader or mm -hmm. something like that, as you know. And they would work their way up. And back when I was doing it, it, would, it was taking years to get to be an operator and more years to get to be a DP. So I started when I was about uh, in my early 30s, Yeah, where I should have been by the time I just got started, I should have been way ahead of the curve and I wasn't. So I, I made the jump, you know, like I said, I looked at that book and I just, I studied that thing all the time. I just kept looking through this book and I never was raised where I was taken to museums and I, you know, yeah. see a lot of paintings and stuff. So this stuff was all new to me. Looking at those paintings was new to me. You know, when they called them the Dutch masters and it, blah, 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 I thought, well, that's good enough for me. They, you know, <laughs> if it's good enough for them. It's good enough for me. Well, okay. So you went, you went to work for, for your friend and you started doing, you know, kind of the, you know, t tie you to the roof of a car kind of shots and put you on a horse and, and, and that kind of stuff. When did it occur to you that like, no, what I want to do is I want to, when, because you say you kind of f fell into being a cinematographer or you, it wasn't something, it wasn't what you were aiming for. But obviously at some point you were like, okay, I see this, this path and I'm going to follow it. Uh, when was that and what made you follow it? Well, I'll tell you, uh, when I first became an aerial cameraman, there wasn't much competition. Nelson Tyler took all the really good mm -hmm. jobs, and he had two or three guys, me being one of them, that he would give jobs that he did not want to do himself because he was excellent at it. He did the shot of Barbara Streisand on the back of this tugboat and uh, some of those great shots that uh, you know uh, go down in history. As, yeah. But he, uh, he would give me all the stuff that he didn't want to do. Mm. But we also had uh, different... Uh, pilots that liked different operators. I had this one one uh, pilot, Jim Gavin, who liked me, 
and he'd take me on everything that he could possibly get me on. Yeah. Then the other guy had another pilot that liked him, and we were always fighting for the jobs, you know, and it only be the winner was whoever hired the, the pilot. Yeah. So I got to the point where there was more and more guys starting to do, they, they built a smaller mount that was rented. Anybody could rent it. And so there was a lot of guys doing aerial stuff. When I first got started, it was all specialized. But a lot of cameramen were doing their own aerial stuff. So it was becoming a shrinking business as far as one guy doing it. It yeah. was becoming huge for Nelson Tyler because he had little... He had the uh, middle mounts all over the world, and the major mounts were for guys that like myself and him and a few other guys. But um, it made me start thinking, I better start thinking about doing something different. And I liked, I liked the camera stuff, and that's when I started getting fired up about being a, a, a lighting cameraman, a director yeah. of photography. One of the connections I made, there, there was a studio across the street from uh, Paramount that used to be called producer studio mm -hmm. it's um trying to think what it's called now it's still not, there not raleigh yeah it is raleigh oh, okay raleigh uh anyway before it became raleigh it was it was um producers i got in with some of the grips and electric guys and they said you know you ought to come in and, and hang around there because uh, they get calls from new york for different jobs and you could get some aerial work which i did but i also got opportunities to shoot on stage once in a while and so that i started doing my lighting and, yeah. and uh, one of one of the things I did one time was with Ike and Tina Turner oh sweet and uh, I lit the set and she came out and gave us a little rehearsal slow and then when they when they turned her loose I couldn't even keep up with her she was, <laughs> she was a bomb anyway it turned out pretty good and so I started getting more and more work and then the bunch at producers decided they wanted to do a movie they said you know we've got all these guys grip and electric and cameramen and assistants that work here. Why don't we do our own movie? So the guy that ran the, the studio took care of the grip and electric and stuff. He he got a guy to write a script called Wind, Place, and Steel. And they had all these directors that directed uh, commercials. And they said, let's pick one of them to be the director on this picture. And We'll let him pick whoever he wants as a cameraman. So we all threw our hat in the ring, you know, wanting to be the cameraman. Of course, I'd never done any, I never shot a film. The guy that they picked as a, uh, the director, the real truth is he did not like, personally not like some of the guys that were up for the cameraman. He picked me and he never even worked with me. Oh, wow. And so I'm now the director of photography on a movie called Wind, Place, and Steel. Every day we'd go out, my crew, my my lighting crew might be all gaffers. So every one of them had a, a suggestion for me. And, I, you know, I'm trying different things and I'm going, <laughs> I got to make up my own mind and not let these guys keep guiding me because I'd light one thing and they'd say, one guy would come up and say, that's too dang dark. And another guy would say, you got too much light. And it was getting real confusing. So I just started not paying attention and just doing what <laughs> I wanted to do. And they started. That's how it happens. Yeah. And that's that's that was my first movie. It never went anywhere, but uh, mm -hmm. I think it. Uh, I think they showed it on TV one time, and uh, we had some screenings. And we all we all had to finance it. We all put in money to start with. We all kicked in a hundred bucks, which doesn't sound like much nowadays, but you know, fifty some years ago, it was a nice piece of change. They went around and they got people to donate cameras, and then we'd pay after we did the movie, and uh, they they got everything. 
and they already had the lighting and grip and all that stuff at the studio. So, mm. but uh, it was fun going out with all key grips and all uh, gaffers and everybody telling me what to do. So it was interesting. Now, did you feel like when you were doing this that you know a lot of a lot of your story again is sort of how you you sort of you didn't fall into it, but how you you sort of took one little step and then another little step, and before you know it, you're you're a DP. At a certain point, are you like, nope, I'm a DP. Here I am. I'm I'm this I'm the author of the image of this movie. Well, I think once I did that film, I did a second unit uh, with Harry Stradling Jr. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that name? I do not. Yeah, he was uh, Harry Stradling. The dad was a big time director of photography that did uh, Barbara Stars and movies. And Harry, his son, who just passed away a few months ago, was doing one movie right after another. And I, I was doing some aerial stuff for him. And we got kind of friendly, and he had me doing all kinds of stunt stuff. I was in a little camera car that was, it looked like a little roadster, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like a hot rod. And we did a, a handheld shot under the engine of a jet taking off. And every time it would take off, it would go on two wheels and almost turn over and flop back. And we had to do it about three times. And that, that had to be harrowing. All the rest of my camera crew's going, you're nuts doing that, you know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I already knew I was nuts. But anyway, Harry <laughs> Harry knew about uh, a guy doing a, a, a movie with Glenn Ford. And so my second movie was a Western with Glenn Ford. Oh, wow. And they wanted to do it on tape. And they said, what do you know about tape? And I said, you wrap it around a film can so light doesn't... <laughs> And the guy said, "I swear to God, they said that they they said you're hired. They didn't want they didn't want a tape guy that knew you know how they wanted a film guy. And we had all these gun you know it was a yeah. western. Every time they shoot a gun, it looked like a, a flamethrower. And and so I brought my handy two C down there, and pretty soon I'm doing sound takes." With you know blankets all over my little camera, I didn't even have a I didn't have a sync motor. Oh really? No, I didn't even have a sync motor, and I'm shooting sound. And pretty soon they said, you know, we don't like the looks of this. They were going to do tape and transfer to film, and it was just why. Yeah. Well, it was a new deal back then. Yeah. And tape looked all right on the stage when they you know would light it the way it's supposed to be lit, but when when it was real. Guns going off and fires, you know, campfires. Everything looked crappy. Yeah, those are like old tube cameras too, yeah. right? So you're getting like weird streaky looking stuff going. Well, on. they brought they brought the gear from Toronto, mm -hmm. and the trucks were about as big as this business. You know, it was a yeah. mile long truck, and it had this cable that went on every camera. And they'd they'd say, "We'd like to be in the river," and they'd say, "Well, you can't run the cable in the water, you know." And so I'd bring my two C and have the horses run through and. Every close-up I did a Glenn Ford, I'd put one foot in the stirrup, my left foot in the right stirrup of his, and hang on to the saddle horn and go along <laughs> like this with my 2C. And I'd, they'd go, where'd you get that shot? You know, Pretty soon they, uh, they got rid of the, the tape. Did any of the tape make it into the no. final? I think, I think I heard there was about one minute that they transferred uh, of something they didn't want to redo. So uh, no. What was the name of the movie? Santee. But that gave me a uh, that gave me a legitimate film because the first one, The Wind, Place, and Steel, that I did out of uh, producers, it never went anywhere. But it it gave me uh, my wife at the time. I've been married four times, so uh, three of them were rehearsals. I'm now on a circle take. <laughs> <laughs> print this one. Yeah, print this one. I've been with her for 29 years. Oh wow. Yeah, she's great. 
But uh, my then wife, when I did that first film and I did it for nothing and was putting money into it, she said, why are you doing this? And I said, it's my film school. And she said, it's stupid. Nobody works for nothing. And then I never looked back. I, from that yeah. day on, I did, I did the one that, with Glenn Ford. Then that got me another film and another film, and, another, you know, and it started the, the ball so, rolling. So when you're starting out, though, back then, was, was film school an option? Because I always feel like film school really came into its own in like the late 60s, early 70s, but you're starting before then. Film school was never an option for me. I mean, yeah. anything, that, anything to do with school was I'm going to break and run. It, it just didn't work for me. And I learned on the job, and that's how I did it. But was there even a film school culture? Like, we, I always hear about, like, you know, kind of like the film school brats were like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and, you know, Francis Ford Coppola. You know, th- th- those people were like the product of like the first super legitimate film schools. But you're starting a little bit, you know, about 10 years before all that. From the time that you started doing kind of aerial 66 stuff. is when I uh, really got started. So film schools, I guess, were starting to be a Yeah, bit no, of a they, thing. they were around. Uh, it just... It just wasn't anything that I ever thought about. Yeah, it's even now when people say, "Why don't you teach it at a film school?" And people have asked me that. Why don't yeah. you do that? I'm just, I wouldn't know how to teach what I do. I I just do it. Yeah, and I I don't understand that, and uh, I don't know if anybody else does. I know how to do what I know how to do, but I can't tell anybody else how to do it. Although I've had people work on the jobs that have asked me, you know, what do you think I should do to get started. Yeah, and I've helped them the best I can, but I, you know, I tell them do it. Just go shoot anything. Yeah, so so it's a very intuitive process for you. Yeah, I also I also uh, during this period of learning, uh, I always had a still camera, and I shot a lot of stills, and I I would uh, I would put different filters on and do different things with filters and see what it, I used to buy um, a motion picture film that was rolled into a roll for uh, still cameras. And what, how, how would that be different than still film? Number one, it was cheap. There was a company that rolled this film up and you could buy it rolls, you know, for pennies on the dollar yeah. and I could just shoot the hell out of stuff and, oh, and get cool. an idea what I wanted to do. I, I also wanted it to be the same kind of atmosphere that I was going to be working in, you know, if I was shooting some stills with that emulsion that I was going to be shooting this uh, on the set. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, was the end product like a slide or were you making prints? Both. Sometimes prints, sometimes. Uh, but I, I, I did shoot a lot of stills for a while. Just I liked different framing and, and seeing what I could do with just stuff that nobody else. I'd shoot trees anything with yeah. form and and it would uh, be interesting to me and it, it was crap that people would just throw away if they saw it I and mean, it was anything anybody would be interested in except me i could i could see what i could get away with in different areas so uh around this time too you started uh doing um uh, correct me if i'm wrong you started doing more operating or second unit kind of stuff like you did on 1941 but but uh, like you worked on a bunch of different stuff as as just a camera operator in those years were you still kind of focusing on on moving towards doing your own stuff? Were you doing your own stuff throughout the whole time, or you know, was it just something you would do to fill in between gigs? Or well, what? you know, when you say 1941, I was a I was a director of photography on the stuff that I was doing. Yeah, the stuff that we shot for the vignettes that was all mm-hmm. done in 16 millimeter. Oh, was it really? Yeah, and it, and they they would project it, and I I don't think you ever saw one frame of what I did when the plane went down, but. He wanted all this stuff done, and uh, it was it was a good chance to meet 
you know, with him. Of course. It not only introduced me to Spielberg, but uh, when Zemeckis came along, I was I was shooting, um, I think it was my first feature film at a major studio at Paramount. It was called Sheila Levine is Dead and Living in New York. Mm-hmm. I got, that is a very intriguing title. I got a call from the director, Sidney Fury. Mm-hmm. I was working on second unit on Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and I go into my room one night. I, I just saw that movie like six months ago for the first time. That movie is bananas. Yeah. And it's so weird to watch it today, too. Just like the whole culture is so radically different. Well, anything you saw with air to air, I did. And anything while they were flying with people inside the helicopter, I was strapped to the skid gear. Oh, wow. And was filming inside the chopper while it was flying. It must have been an exciting time to be working, though. Like, you know, people today romanticize like the late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s, and kind of like that was a time when the studios would take kind of wild swings at stuff that would feel very independent by today's standards. And a lot of the people who came out of that, I hate to use the term auteur, but a lot of the people who came out of that period are are, are name brand filmmakers, directors, and DPs, you know, who, who whose work really resonates and holds up. And a movie like that, like I feel like that movie feels out of time today, but so do things like Easy Rider, you know, like it, it's it's hard, I think, to make something that's so zeitgeisty. What was it like even just kind of being in Hollywood, being the atmosphere where there was kind of, was there more of an experimental scent in the air when you were, when you were doing those kinds of films? Well, the people that I ran with, certainly, yes, but I think there was a lot of resentment towards the old school about us young punks coming along, yeah. uh, doing wild, crazy stuff, you know, I mean, we, we just kind of had to stay with our own clique because a lot of the old school guys, but a lot of the directors like guys like me coming along. You know, yeah. uh, Spielberg, for instance. When uh, Zemeckis and Bob Gale, they were writing partners, they came on the lot and was eating off the craft service tables <laughs> in everybody's uh, soundstage <laughs> for something to eat, you know. Yeah. And here I was, long hair, a handlebar mustache, bell-bottom pants with that I cut and frayed the bottom so that it, yeah. you know and stuff sewn on it and <laughs> you know, and just didn't look like the regular DP. Yeah, yeah. And when he got an opportunity to do his first movie with Spielberg, it was called I Want to Hold Your Hand, and it was about the Beatles coming to America. And these kids wanting to go see the Beatles in New York, one of their dads owned a um, funeral home. And they took one of the limos and they went to New York to see the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, none of it was shot in New York except some runbys, which uh, Spielberg got a cameraman there. And the guy called me and asked me what kind of shots to get. And I said, just get that limo driving with the background so that we think we're in New York. That movie was the one that that Spielberg got acquainted with me. And he told Zemeckis that he could have any director of photography in the business, anybody you want. And Spielberg threw my name in. I didn't even know he knew, I didn't even know who he was. He was walking around the sets and he he saw me and I guess he talked to me for a minute, but I looked a little more hip to him than, you know, some of the guys sitting in the chair not doing anything. And uh, (laughs) uh, he said, I want Don Morgan. So I was shooting, uh, after that, I went to New York and was shooting a um, television version of a movie that had already come out. But anyway, he came and knocked on the door and threw uh, 
uh, him and Bob Gale came on and they threw the, uh, the script on the bed and they said, this isn't an interview, this is yours if you want it. And they told me that Spielberg was producing it. And I thought that would probably be a good idea to take it. <laughs> so uh, that's how I got started with that. But everything just seemed to roll in. You know, all of my stuff, uh, I don't know whether you call it luck or you make your own luck. I think I made a lot of my own because I, I, I just wasn't afraid to try stuff. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you also, you know, my, my initial question, you know, about the lighting versus composition, it, it almost seems like, you know, you kind of started from a point of view of like, what am I going to do with the camera? Like, correct me, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm reading into it. But it seems like you were like, I want to put the camera in places that we haven't seen it. Like, it almost came from an, uh, an instinct to innovate in a way. You know, you were after the adrenaline rush, but after a while, I'm assuming you became, you know, very, very focused on the craft. Your craft is, is so strong. Being recommended by Steven Spielberg, again, at like, you know, this is like early, early prime Spielberg. This is like around the time he did uh, Close Encounters. Wasn't 1941 the next thing he did after Close Encounters? If I'm not mistaken. No, uh, he did 1941, I believe, right after we finished doing, you know, you, you talked about used cars. When I went from, I don't remember the, uh, what films I did around that time, yeah. but, uh, but when I was doing used cars, that was, that was Zemeckis. Yeah. And it was produced by Spielberg, but he wasn't there all the time like he was on the first film that we did. Well, and Spielberg kind he of was, he mentored was, Zemeckis early in his he career. He was doing 1941. Oh, now. right around the same time. Yeah. He buffered a lot of the studio stuff mm -hmm. from stuff we would have probably caught hell about, but he, he was able to buffer it on, on uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. But when we were doing used cars, he wasn't there. And they, you know, when uh, Zemeckis would take too much time for something, or I would take too much time for lighting. We'd catch hell where the previous movie, we'd have him as a buffer. Yeah. He'd tell us if we were taking too much time or if, you know, and the the the, the power wasn't with us. Um, I, I have a, I'm, it's a cinematography podcast and not a directing podcast, but I have a Zemeckis related question. But I, but I, it's specifically about the cinematography I've seen in a lot of his movies. And, and since you shot his first two features, right? Yeah. A lot of directors obviously just shoot coverage. It's like wide shot, overs, overs, whatever. When I watch Zemeckis movies, I always feel like he thinks in sequence. So it's not coverage as much as one shot leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. Now, early on in his career, when you're working on I Want to Hold Your Hand and Used Cars, what did he, was he already in that mode? And also, how different, was the, how different was it working with somebody like him versus some of the people you'd already been working with? He always knew what he wanted. And when he didn't, he wasn't the kind of guy that faked it. He would turn to Spielberg or myself or say, you know, I'm kind of vapor locked here. What, uh, what would you do? Yeah. And Spielberg would look like he was over playing a little game and he didn't look like he was even paying attention to us. He'd jump up and say, put a track here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do this, do that, and come down this way. And then you'd got, you only owe yourself an over over here. And, you know, Spielberg is brilliant. We made a few mistakes on the first film of not doing coverage yeah. and cutaways and stuff that the editors really needed. And a lot of time, we'd have to go back and duplicate, and maybe we were in an alley, and I would have to figure out the lighting to match whatever close-up or whatever I had to do. So uh, he learned a lot from the first film. And, yeah. and uh, I remember one time he said on uh, Used Cars, I had this really neat shot lined up, and he came and looked through the camera and he said, you don't see both eyes. And I said, well, I remembered that he had two eyes from the scene before. <laughs> and he said, that's not smart. And I said, you're just worried about what Spielberg's going to think. And, and, <laughs> and that really uh, didn't set well with him. He, he was angry at me for a while. But Aww. 
I think he was bold, but I, I like yeah. guys that did things that maybe everyone else wouldn't do, but uh, but looked good at the. T- that was the thing that I liked about uh, Sid Fury on uh, Sheila Levine's Dead and Living in New York. We shot anamorphic, and it was almost ninety percent indoors, and we're shooting these wide shots. And when they went to television, they'd have to do these scans. Yeah, pan and scan. Yeah, it's the to, worst to to see the person because. We had shots where you'd see two feet uh, out of both people's in the set, but not the rest of their bodies weren't there because the shots were so wide. In fact, we'd we'd have the crew come in and straighten uprights because the anamorphic would bend the walls and stuff. But we'd have to we'd have to bend them to to make the shot work. So it was time consuming, but it was interesting, and it gave me an opportunity to work with someone that wasn't always. Uh, wanting this, you know, just r- extreme close-ups all the time. Yeah. In television, when I was first getting started, when I would do television stuff, they always wanted these extreme close-ups. They'd say, television sets are so small, you want to really be able to see. You know, and that might have been valid then, but later on when we got these big tele, some of those people still wanted these close-ups all the time. And that's the thing I liked about Gordon Willis. Gordon Willis would shoot something in a 25 millimeter wide like that. Yeah. And maybe he'd go one one lens tighter and push in, but you could still see everything that you saw before because he did not believe that you had to just give you that and blow the background out so you could keep attention spans going. You know, uh, people aren't like that. I mean, I'm looking at you and I see every one of these things on the wall and yeah. it's not taking my attention away from you. And I, I just don't believe that, you know, and so I like that kind of shooting. When you're working with a director who doesn't come to you with the exact coverage and all the preparation and is kind of relying on you to come up with the coverage, do you tend in that direction to kind of let things play out in wider, longer shots? No, I believe in I believe in, in giving the actor the you know, that's doing the line a shot, but I just I just don't like these no forehead haircuts. Yeah. All of the time. I think there's times when that's valid and, you know, maybe something really important. I didn't have a reputation of being a a team player on episodic. Yeah. Because I, it drove me crazy that they had these set ideas and everything had to be done that way every every time. This one, they would roll in on every, whatever you would say, the camera had to roll in a little bit and, and just that little push, just enough that the audience knew the camera was getting closer on everybody that talked. And I said, what do we do if someone says something important? Pull back, you know? <laughs> what, do you, what do you do different? And they didn't like that. But um, Well, that's always my question for, uh, for DPs who shoot a lot of television is, you know, like if you're making a movie, you're telling a story, you have an arc, a visual arc that you're creating. But if you're shooting day in, day out the same, ep- the same episodic show, like what, where is the creativity for you in it? I mean, obviously it's a steady paycheck and there's a lot of good reasons to do it. But uh, from a strictly creative standpoint, like what's, what's the creative stake? How do you keep the spark alive on, on a TV show? I'm blessed that I never got stuck with too much time on, on a series. I, I, did, I did some work on, on two or three different series. And then I did a lot of second unit stuff on uh, different series that friends of mine were shooting. And they'd say, are you working? And, I, you know, I love to work, so I, I'd take anything. That, uh, there was one series where I did all of the courtroom stuff. The showrunner came in one day and he said, I want everything shot on at least a 200 millimeter lens. What? And I said, we're in a courtroom. He said, I know that. He said, I want you to shoot all long lens stuff. 
And he said, certainly you can go a little wider when you're trying to show the whole audience, but I still want that feeling of long lens. And what it meant was if the person was standing talking to the judge, I had to move the wall and the the, uh, seat where the judge was and all of that stuff back and get way back and shoot that. And then whenever that showrunner wasn't around, I'd just shoot a 100-millimeter lens on him, and it looked the same. But, but if he saw it, he had to have all his stuff move. And, and you know, you got a gun and run on those things. And uh, yeah, yeah. they would say, well, I don't know how you get done so fast when you know, all that you know, moving the walls. Eh, the guys are really good, you know, you know. It's simple. I don't listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like we're slowly moving up to, the, to my big question, which is your work with John Carpenter. And you did three movies with John Carpenter, uh, the Elvis movie that he, where Kurt Russell starred as uh, Elvis, which is the first time, to my knowledge, John Carpenter worked with Kurt Russell who then went on to be Snake Plissken and McCready and all that stuff. You also shot Christine, and you also shot Starman. I, I didn't see the Elvis movie when I was a kid because there was no way to seek that kind of stuff out like there is today. But I must say that I have, I, I videotaped uh, Christine and Starman. I, my parents were did not take me to see Christine in the theater. It was too young. But I, I did see Starman in the theater, and I watched them both on videotape a bazillion times after they were on HBO or whatever. There's several directors on your filmography where you have, you know, you've worked for the same people over and over again. But, like, we're talking prime John Carpenter. How did that relationship uh, come about? John Carpenter saw that Western that I did, the Glenn Ford Western. The one that was supposed to be on tape. Yeah. Yeah. He saw that, and he knew who I was. But I also worked with John. He rode in the helicopter. He directed a commercial, and I did the aerial part of the commercial. And I didn't know him from Adam. I I didn't know, you know, hey, you're you're riding with a guy that's— does big films and blah, blah, blah. Was it, be, I mean, I'm assuming it was after he did like Halloween or any, any of that early stuff. Well, he I mean, did, he, wor- he worked for a, a Canadian company that did commercials and he directed commercials even through his early filming stuff. Uh, I think he'd already done Halloween and all yeah. those. Uh, my um, little side thing, the, the wife that I'm married to now mm-hmm. for 29 years, darling, if you hear this, I love you more than anything in the world. Leave that in. <laughs> totally leaving. <laughs> Make that the in. sound come out with beautiful music. I'll anyway, chorus of angels behind it. My stepson, her son, was Adrian Barbeau's little boy in the fog. Oh wow! And uh, well, I never knew them then. Mm-hmm. But when I worked on the first John Carpenter thing, he told me that he was doing a a movie called The Fog, but that he had to use the cameraman that he'd been using. We'd work together again sometime, but uh, he, he was going to work with this guy again. And uh, I said, that's fine. You know, I understand that. So it's funny. I would have known my wife many years before, and her boy was nine years old. And, oh, wow. And worked on. So there was a little connection there that we found out way later. But John Carpenter and his producer flew to New York, and they saw my Western on that flight. They came back, and they... They got a hold of me while I was working on Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. I came in and I met with him and he said, I'm going to use, he told me that he was using another cameraman who I knew. And he said, "Uh, I'm not sure he's going to be able to do this film. So if he doesn't, I'd like to know if you'd be interested. I said, yeah. And I said, where did you see my work? Because I hadn't had much work out yet, you know. And he told me the story about uh, seeing the film on te- on the flight back and forth. He said, I'll let you know tomorrow at noon whether you've got the job or not. 
noon came and went and he didn't call so oops yeah i thought uh oh so i got so excited you know thinking about a big paramount movie or, or a big movie yeah so i called him and told him that i had another offer that i was thinking about taking <laughs> but i wanted to know if he and he said no it looks like you're gonna do this oh sweet so then i got hired and that was elvis was that elvis yeah and uh, okay, so that so that was Elvis, and that was made for TV at the time, right? Yeah. So I mean, John Carpenter had had you know enormous success already with Halloween, which I think at the time was the most successful indie film ever made. It's relatively low budget. I think it, if my memory serves, it was like two hundred fifty k. But he's like moving up up the ranks, kind of a a named guy, and this is one of his his big like a big stepping stone for him. How would you describe like your collaborative process with with him? I had a lot of fun working with John. He was. He just didn't seem like the rest of the guys that I'd been around that were old Hollywood. Um, you know, he was pretty fresh out of film school. He'd made a few films. He was just fun to work with, and he was very creative. And, you know, uh, he does his own music and all kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah. You know, he's a very creative guy. And everything that I had learned up to that point, John didn't care about. I mean, when we would do a, an establishing shot of a house, for any other director that I'd done, we would just do a static shot of the house and cut away and then do whatever. Uh, that was an establishing shot. John would put Dolly Track down and move. Yeah, yeah. And my question was, uh, wh- what's the motivation? Don't worry about that. Don't worry about what motivates it. it. It looks better moving. I want the camera moving all the time. So a lot of the stuff, uh, it w- even when we were doing, not on Elvis, but when we were doing other films and he was doing steady cam stuff I would always have him come around and stop at a certain point and he'd say why do you stop and I said well because we're over the shoulder here he said no just keep going and I said what good is that he said I want to cut on the move so he he had reasons for everything that he did and when you saw it cut together did did it uh did it click did you did it yeah, make sense no it worked it worked when you're when you're working with him on on a movie, I mean, I I have so many questions about movie movies like specifically Christine, you know, because Christine was like, I feel like every month a new Stephen King movie came out, and every person who was kind of a master of horror at the time, David Cronenberg would do The Dead Zone, and you know, like one after another, you know, I I just remember you know Cujo, blah blah blah, like a Stephen King movie just seemed to come out every five minutes, and Christine was one that was especially interesting because you know like Stephen King does you know monster cars and toys and stuff like that like things that have no sentience he he fills them with that how do you go about constructing you're used to at this point shooting westerns uh and you're used to not not just westerns but you're used to shooting like kind of more more conventional movies and Christine must have been kind of a way out of out of uh left field as far as the movies that were being made even back then no, it, it was it was a real change for me, but I just uh, I trusted him. You know, I trusted John. Uh, he he had a he had a pretty good run before I met him yeah. of, of successful things, and he was easy to talk to. You know, I'd ask him questions about why are we doing this this way, and what he did like is he did not like to talk in front of everybody. He wanted you to come to you know his trailer and and yeah. talk over changes. Back in the day, uh, the Steadicam had a camera, the, the lightweight camera, this rotating mirror. When you w- would go along with hot windows, it would reflect back and make a, a strange look. You know, you'd get a reflection. And he had this long shot, Steadicam shot, in 
that Darnell's garage. Mm-hmm. And I went and knocked on his door and I said, I'd like to do that on a dolly. Why? And I told him what the camera was, you know, the problem we were having with the camera. And he said, okay. But, but he still wanted that long, long, you know, take. And so we had to lay track forever. He, he, was, he was fun to work with. And he, you know, he was a little younger than most of the, not, not than Zemeckis, but, uh, yeah. you know, he was young. And uh, I always thought they learned stuff in film school that they just couldn't get out of their head. John always wanted a car coming at you with the, the crosshairs right on the car. And I'd always like to tip up, like in the alley where he was running over that kid. Mm-hmm. You know, the kid's running in front of the car. I, I'm shooting up like this. I got the car and everything he wanted to see, but I could see the windows that I had lit, and it made a pleasant look. But he liked that crosshair right on the, the money. And uh, I never understood that, but uh, those were little things that we worked out. And, of course, he's a director, so we did it his way. Well, and, and it's a time, you know, before CGI, but kind of during a boom time for practical effects. Like, practical effects were taking huge leaps. And that movie's full of outrageous practical effects that really hold up when you watch it today. Whereas, you know, obviously there wasn't CGI, but you look at old CGI and it never holds up. If a young cinematographer was approaching a movie like, like Christine today, they, I think that they'd be like, okay, well, this is all going to be visual effects, blah, blah, blah. But you had to figure out how to do it practically. And some people, um, there's a director I know named Adam Green, who's a horror filmmaker. And it's like, he's always trying to pull stuff off practically. He, he does very little visual effects and, and it, it makes a difference, I think. Well, there's a, it's a more real feeling because uh, I think, I think visual effects, they always go overboard. It's too much, you know, and I personally, I'm not real crazy about movies that have monsters that walk over and crash over buildings and all Mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, I, I like stuff that I think might happen. And Christine was a little out of my, (laughs) my uh, uh, plan, but I love doing it. But do you think that, I, I think that with that kind of stuff, maybe you bring a grounding to it because it is, because you do see what could go ridiculous in it. So you 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 rein that in before it even gets to the point where it could. Well, I hope I do that. <laughs> the interesting part about Christine was there was so many people that put their all into that. You know, Roy Orbergast, the the effects guy that did all that, cut all that stuff out, and he he cut all the bracing out of part of the car. And we would pull a fender in, and we'd shoot it with the camera upside down, and then you'd see it pop back out. And that's where all that stuff started. Yeah, it's really. like an old, an old, an old trick to turn the camera upside down. So when you, so when you play it back, yeah. it's it's right side up, but right. it's backwards. Yeah, or it's in and reverse. You'd see the mirror pop back up, you know, yeah. and and all the glass fall back in, and it felt organic. You know, it didn't feel. I don't think the movie felt visually effective. You know. Yeah. No, it, it, it felt very real. And, and I'm sorry if I keep coming back to that, but I feel like it's, it's such a, I, I don't want to, I don't mean this in a kitschy way at all, but it's a cult movie. It's a movie that, that, it is. that people still watch and still revere today. But it also, I feel like it meant that, you know, the two of you probably had to be very prepared in terms of what kind of shots you were going to, you were going to get. You can't just go get well, a mess of it. You're right. In, in the uh, stuff we did in Darnell's garage, you know, the, the, the garage where the, the kid drove the car in and kept it there. That was called Darnell's Garage. The, we, were, we were there for five weeks in that one building. Wow. Every night. Man. And that was the only time I saw John have storyboards. He said, because we're doing a piece here and a piece here, and a week later we're filling that in and blah, blah, blah. 
he said, I've got to have it storyboarded so I can, you know, keep track of what we got to do. So he storyboarded that whole thing where the tractor ran over the car mm-hmm. and all that. He didn't storyboard Starman because Starman has so many visual effects for its time. They may have had a few, but we he, he didn't like storyboards too much. Do you think that the two of you worked so well together because you both kind of want to show up on the day and react to what's happening in front of you more? You know, John sat down one time after we did some running stuff, and he sat down on the curb, and we were waiting to be picked up. And he said, you know, I love your work. I can't see any other cameraman ever doing my work other than you. And, of course, I never worked with him again, so I don't know what that was about. <laughs> but uh, we we really clicked. We When he and I split after, I don't know that we split, but when he quit using me, he went back to Dean Cundy. Yeah. Dean Cundy was working for, um, I think we just swapped one time. Yeah, Dean Cundy was uh, working for Zemeckis. He did a Zemeckis film, and I was doing a Carpenter film, and then we swapped. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. To, uh, John, John was cool. I don't know why we didn't do more films, but, uh, you know, that's yeah. the way the business is. You do a few and... Yeah, you're lucky to get the ones that you ever get in the first yeah, place. And somewhere along the line, uh, a director sees something that he likes about another guy and he wants to try it. And yeah, yeah. It's totally understandable. Well, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I, I even feel like, you know, even people like uh, the Coen brothers, you know, they work with Barry Sonnenfeld for a long time and then they moved to Roger Deakins and they work with Chivo on one of their films, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it, it makes it, it does make sense. Uh, although, like, I, I really do feel like the flashy films of John Carpenter are like Escape from New York and The Thing and Halloween. But I feel like the Elvis movie, like, does a lot of research go into that, even if you're, like, submersing yourself in it and then getting to the point where you can fl- fly by the seat of your pants in that world. I honestly think that John and I talked over a look mm. and John just let me go Yeah, with the lighting and stuff. You know, I mean, he directed the the movements and stuff, but... I'm going to roll back a little bit and tell you the history that I've had with with uh, Elvis. Mm-hmm. Before any of this stuff, before I was uh, doing much aerial camera work and I was just as, uh, assisting on the aerial unit, I got called to go on a movie that they were shooting some aerials and they wanted one of John, one of uh, Tyler's favorite guys was going to shoot some aerials. And they sent me along as the assistant on the aerial unit. It was called Stay Away Joe, Mm -hmm. an Elvis, a real Elvis movie. So I'm on an Elvis movie with Elvis. And I've got a picture at home of he and I together, which is cool. That's awesome. But I also was sitting in the car a few times when Elvis and his gang was playing grab ass and kick and then kidding each other and, and, and I'm I'm sitting in the car with these guys doing that, and I'm thinking, this is cool. <laughs> I know this is something. So I actually worked with Elvis. Then after Elvis died, Laszlo Kovacs and I were uh, hired to shoot that guy, Pris- <laughs> Priscilla at Graceland. Oh wow! And we shot all those people that went around the the grave and the flowers and the craziness and. So I, those were my connections with with the real Elvis. So did that impact when you're when you're making a movie about Elvis? And that movie was like a year or two after he died, right? Like that movie was seventy nine, I want to say, the Elvis. Elvis, I think it was seventy nine, and he died in seventy seven. So it's like shortly after he died. I think you're right. I got nominated for an Emmy, and so did uh, Kurt on Elvis. Mm-hmm. 
And I was working on the next Kurt Russell movie, which was Amber Waves. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get to go to the to the uh, the awards because uh, we were up there in in Canada doing this. They wouldn't let you out. Yeah. <laughs> See, I did three movies with Kurt. I did the first one, you know, was Elvis. The second one was Amber Waves, and the third one was uh, Used Cars. Yeah, yeah. So I had a run going with it. <laughs> I actually hadn't put together the Used Cars thing. Uh, that I mean, I know Kurt Russell was the star. I just never, never, never clicked. That's cool. So yeah. you're working with him like, well, I mean, he was like a Disney kid, and this is sort of like as he's trying to establish himself as a grown-up right around then quite successfully. You, you got to work with him on three projects in a row. That's Hell of a guy, by the way. He, he was uh, one of my favorite stars to work with because he, he was uh, just a real good guy. He did a lot of the, and the used car stuff. He did a lot of those stunts himself, standing up on the cars and doing stuff. And he knew when, when he shouldn't do stuff, but he, he did as much of it for real as he, you know, and it made it really simple to, to photograph him doing it, you know, without having to worry about getting way back and having a stunt guy do it and then do some dumb close-up. <laughs> well, and also, he's such a he's such a physical actor, and again, especially back then, you know, when you think about all the roles he was doing back then, uh, you know, uh, Escape from New York and the thing come to mind, but, you know, so much, so much physicalization in, in that kind of stuff. And he's so good. He's one of those actors who's good with drama and comedy in, like, equal measures. Like, yeah. he's able to pull, it, pull them both off. So another director that you appear to have worked with, correct me if I'm wrong, a whole lot was Joseph Sargent. My favorite guy on the face of the earth. He R- passed away two years ago. And, uh, he was he was something. So, he's he's the one that did uh, Kurt Russell's movie Amber Waves. Mm-hmm. He directed that. So how did uh, how did your relationship uh, come about with him? I mean, I mean, I do think it's interesting when you like a lot of times you associate certain DPs working with certain directors, and I feel like you know how many. You worked on a bunch of his movies, right? How many was it? I did 13. Yeah, that's a lot of movies to work on with the same director. What clicked between the two of you guys? And, and you know, like, what was your working relationship? I'm always trying to dig down when talking to cinematographers about, like, if you could build a director in a laboratory to be the perfect working uh, collaborator with you, wh- what would that director be like? It would be like Joe Sargent. He's, he, he's just, he's such a gentleman and such a, yeah, I mean, you know, he's passed now, yeah. but... Uh, he was the guy that if you made a suggestion, he'd, t- he'd lay a shot out. If I looked around and I, I remember one shot where somebody was running across the room and you know we were up here and it was just a standard shot. And I said, what if I'm under the desk here and I see the feet running and I make a, a, a run with it and come up and catch him? Yeah. Uh, just stuff like that. And I, I'd say something to him about it. He'd go, oh my God, that's perfect. You know what, Don? And he, if it was a grip or me or anybody that had a good idea, he would just blare it out and let everybody know yeah. what a great idea it was that so and so made. And if he didn't like it, he'd go, "No, no, that's okay. We'll do it this way." <laughs> he was very quiet about what he didn't want and very loud about what you suggested. And he was just fun to work with. And he he was so sure of himself, you know, that he didn't mind people making uh, a lot of directors feel less than when you give them an idea and they didn't think of it. And I, I mean, I've, I'm not gonna give names, but I, I, I've been with guys that uh, I would give them a suggestion and just because it was said in, around other people, they wouldn't do it yeah. because they didn't want to uh, be put down. 
Joe Sargent never had a shot list ever. I used to have producers come to me that didn't know him and they'd say, you know, Joe hasn't given us a shot list. And I said, he never will. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. He, he watches actors rehearse and he tells them what he wants. Joe was, a, a, that's, I guess that's why we had such a, a, a connection is Joe didn't like to write out everything that he was supposed to do. Joe would, we'd pick him up in a car some, sometimes when I rode with him and he'd look through the script of what he was going to do that day on the way to work. You know? yeah, it wasn't yeah. like he poured over it all night and was sweating over it and all that that you would think he would be doing. But he liked to watch actors work. And if actors wasn't comfortable doing something, he'd say, well, show me show me what you, you would like to do. And he was freewheeling enough to, uh, he came from stage. He directed stage stuff and he was a stage actor. So I think that uh, background let him Mm-hmm. let the people play out what they wanted to do. He would tell them what he wanted to start with. And uh, if they had a uh, another idea, he'd let them do it. So how does a director like that, and how do you, while kind of managing the set, how do you, how do you engender an environment like that without making people feel like it's a free-for-all? Because to me, that's the, the danger, is if an idea can come from anywhere, sometimes they start coming from everywhere, and then, and then, kind of, there's it, it. There's an apparent or implied power vacuum that other people decide that they're going to fill by being very decisive. The wrong people, the people who aren't you or the director, or somebody in charge. I have been really fortunate in my career to be surrounded by people that wanted to, that I respected their work and they respected my work, and a lot of ideas, a lot of good ideas came from camera operators. You know, I'd show them, I worked with one camera operator for 12 years, but they would see the shot be rehearsing it with maybe a stand-in. And they'd say, Don, you know what would look good? And they would give me an idea. Yeah. And then I'd say, you know, the camera operator, that's the thing that I learned also, that I loved it about uh, Joe Joe Sargent, but I also, that feeling to make people feel free to talk to you about things. You know, I'd let I'd tell my camera operator, I'd say, if you see anything better than what we laid out real quick, because I'm busy lighting now, and they would come up with an idea, and I would, yeah, why not? Well, and uh, well, and also let me ask you a little bit about your relationship with operators, because you started out as an operator on other, on other people's stuff. So, at what point do you take your hands off the camera and work with other operators, and did, when you're working with them? With other operators, do you feel like, no, I just want to grab it and do it the way I would do it? Or are you excited about working with their creative ideas about operation? The guys that I n- normally worked with that that were on my crew all the time, like Chris Weaver, if I wanted to see something in the camera, I'd say, let me operate on this one, will you? And he never felt, I mean, he was the same kind of a... Um, Guy, he had the same kind of makeup that Joe Sargent had. Only a, he's a camera operator. He did not feel put down, and I would never, I would never try to just keep doing shots after shots. I was a pretty good operator, but I wasn't as good as the guys that I hired. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, those guys did it every day, all the time. And uh, commercials, we never really had to do, you know, real complicated stuff in my my experience it was always pretty straight ahead and if you made a mistake it was easy to cover up and do do something to cover it up but uh, <laughs> but guys that did these beautiful long you know 
complicated shots. Yeah, working the wheels. Your, like you're, you're pantomiming working the wheels. Yeah. And I remember in film school, we had a whorl head and nobody could master it. And our, our, I remember our teacher saying, like, if you ever go on a set and they're using like a, like a fluid head, it's not a real set. And I feel like that that definitely comes from a, a time back then. But like you would learn how many. Yeah. Well, I can't. I became pretty good at that. I, I was a fair operator. I was. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm not giving myself enough credit, but I wanted to be. I wanted the guys to feel like they were doing their job. Mm-hmm. I had operators. Like I say, it's, it also gives you an extra set of eyes looking at stuff that you don't have time all the time to. You know, when you're lighting. I wanted to take my time lighting because I was not the fastest lighting guy in the world. I, I never, you know, guys, had, <laughs> I've had producers say, are you good and fast? I said, I could be one or the other, but I can't do both. <laughs> you know, how it's about like, good? It's like that quick, quick, cheap and good pick any two, yeah. you know, the old, the old saying. Well, that, that, that's all interesting. Well, what, what, I'm, what I'm kind of hearing from you, though, is like, you know, kind of fostering a spirit of collaboration, which is, uh, it sounds easy. But I feel like like the difficulty of collaboration is always like, again, how do you give people just enough rope and, and so that they don't run away with the show? They don't they don't take they don't take your authorship away from your job, but they're also they're they're improving upon it. I was listening to an interview with uh, Ron Howard recently where he was talking about he has what he calls the six of one rule, which is if you pit, if, if you're shooting for him and you have an idea that he thinks is as good as his idea, he'll go with your idea. If he thinks that they're equivalent, because he feels like you'll take more, you'll take ownership of it, and and you'll feel like you own a piece of, of his film, and I think that's a, a brilliant way to collaborate with people. But I also feel like the the pitfall of it is some people will be like, oh, I can I can just come in and start talking to the actors, or I can just come in and do something that's kind of outside the purview of my job, as opposed to pitching it to the person who would decide. Yeah, I got to tell you that when I first got started in this business, you took your crew everywhere. You know, when I would get a film like um, Starman, Starman, we went all over the country. Yeah. But I always had my operator with me all the time, my first assistant, my second assistant. Sometimes they would try to get you to get different assistants out of town, you know. But uh, I would say, you know, I would fight for the crew. And I would always have the key grip and the gaffer. And sometimes both of their best boys were always so... We were such a family that we just didn't have guys trying to, you know, outdo each other. So it was all about trust and you got and, and familiarity. I mean, it's different. The the later part of my career where they would say, well, you can have one or two people go with you. You know, you had to pick which ones you wanted to have. Well, let's talk a little bit about about kind of the later stuff in your career. Uh, Tony Libertori, who who uh, you know the, we talked about earlier, storyboard artist, and he's a friend of yours. Uh, he was he was telling me uh, like when he when he told me about you the like you know obviously I glommed right onto all the John Carpenter stuff but he was talking about working on Seven which I guess you did aerial stuff on correct so I mean you're still shooting today right occasionally <laughs> when they think I'm still alive you know someone will say why don't you use Don Morgan is he still alive really <laughs> oh man no I I, I uh... I've got a few projects that look like they might pop. Uh, I've mm-hmm. got a Western that I'm really excited about that might happen. And, uh, you know, it'll either happen or it won't. I, I'm, I'm fortunate that uh, I'm not one of those guys that sit around and go, oh, the young guys are taking over. You know, sure, they're taking over. They're supposed to. That's the way it works. Yeah. And, uh, and you were one of those guys. And I was one of those guys. That's exactly what I tell people. I say, don't they want your experience? Sure, they do. But they want him to be 35. <laughs> you know, it's real simple. And 
and there are people that have my experience and they are 35. I mean, I don't think you got to do 100 movies to be good at what you do. Mm-hmm. You might have to do 100 movies to get the one that puts you over to do, you know, to get good stuff. But it doesn't mean you weren't good to begin with because I did a lot of stuff that was just couldn't be good. There was no way it could be good. And it didn't matter whether it was lit beautiful or whatever. It was crap, you know, from the page to the screen. And I think you make your own luck. I really think, I don't believe in just, you know, I, I, there, are, there are these stories where, you know, someone gets plucked out of the crowd and gets a break that you go, wow, how did that guy ever get that? And, and I, you know, I hear those, but there must have been something that that guy did to, to deserve the break. I mean, I, karma, I, you know, you, you do something. Uh, well, I feel like you could bullshit your way into directing stuff because if you're a really good salesman, you can get there. But to be a cinematographer, you have to have the goods. Like, you know, we can look at your reel. We can see your work. The blessing and the curse about my career is that I never said no to something I wanted to do that didn't make sense for a guy where I was supposed to be. I was nominated nine times for Emmys, and I won five of them, and I've, I've won uh, ASC awards for cinematography. And I've, I'm the first guy ever to be uh, given the honor of career achievement in television. It's like the lifetime achievement brought up at the at the meeting on who to give a lifetime achievement award and they brought up my name and they said, well, Don, Don hasn't been doing features lately. He's been doing movie of the weeks. And we like to keep it with feature people getting that honor. Somebody said, well, why don't we, why don't we give an award for uh, television? I started out in features. I left for seven years and did nothing but commercials. I was making a lot of money. I had a new family. I uh, bought a big house in Bell Canyon, and I was just living big, driving the Porsche and being, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Hollywood. Pretty and, much like Ilya. Yeah. I made a lot of money, and I, uh, I was having a good time doing that. And then the commercials changed. Their tactics changed. They wanted to start using, instead of a lot of the, the directors that I'd worked with in commercials, they wanted to, they were using... The new hot thing was music music video directors. Yeah, yeah. And music video directors would start asking for their cameramen that they'd. W- and so we were getting less and less work. I directed some commercials, and you know it was big money. It was big money in those days. So I had to come back, and and I had to start thinking about getting back in long form again, which I always loved more than commercials. But I did the commercials for the money yeah, uh, yeah. at the time. The first offer I ever had, after I decided to come back was a movie called Murder in Mississippi. It was a story, Mississippi Burning, the feature film. Yeah, Did yeah. you see that? Alan Parker. Yeah. That story was after the boys were killed. Mm-hmm. This story started with them and what they were doing and a guy from New York that came down and blah, blah, blah. And uh, right up to, we photographed them being killed and all that. And, and that's what that story was about. Now, that was my first film back after directing and shooting commercials for seven years, I got nominated for a cable ace, which they don't have anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I got nominated for an Emmy, and I got nominated for an ASC award. Nice. I won two of the three. So now, in the big scheme of things, you're now a television cameraman. Your, your career is now movie of the weeks, not not episodic, but a m- movie of the weeks. That film got me more films doing a movie of the weeks. 
I almost got to a point where I, I didn't do any feature work. Well, those are all feature length. Are, what's the difference between shooting an MOW and shooting a, well, a feature? Well, the respect level in, in the community is featured camera people are, are supposed to be uh, oh, yeah. a, a cut above television people. I feel like it's different now. Like if you're making I think a, it is a feature for Netflix now. or HBO. I think you're right. I think that now you can mix it up. There's mm-hmm. a lot of feature cameramen wanting to do good television and vice versa. Back when I, when I made that jump... Even though while I even while I had the feature career, I would do a movie of the week once in a while, but I was still considered a feature guy. But when I came back and won all those awards right off the bat, that's what started getting offered to me. Mm-hmm. And that's when I had that long run. I did 13 films with Joe Sargent. And some of those were for TV, right? They were all for TV. Oh, all his stuff was for TV? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Roger Young, I did 10 films with him. He's the one that did the, the uh, Murder in Mississippi. Man, and uh, so I mean, but like other than that, like what's the what's the difference in shooting? Are the schedules a lot shorter on those? Yeah, you've got to run and gun a lot harder uh, in in television, it, even the movie of the weeks. I mean, Starman was twenty two weeks. Wow, because we traveled around twenty two weeks of shooting, and about four or five or six weeks of prep. Yeah, and. Movie of the weeks, you uh, sign on and they say, uh, "Okay, Monday, give us your, <laughs> you know, we're going to go scout." And maybe, maybe they would take you around a little bit. Well, I don't think I've ever done a film where I didn't see some of the locations, but I have done uh, movie of the weeks where we we didn't even know what we were going to do when we got to a different town. You know, how many days uh, would most of those shoot for? A good uh, television movie of the week, maybe you'd have four weeks. Oh, that's, I mean, that's tight, but it's not that's the end a, of the one. Yeah. But that's that's not, a lot of them were trying to think of what some of the shorter ones were, were you know. Yeah. You, you really had to run, run and gun. Yeah, those are tight. Yeah. I don't know whether it would have changed my career or not, but I, I, I look back on my career and I, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. I had a lot of fun doing a lot of stuff that I, uh, and I learned something every time I did it. You know, so, so where where does that come from though? The you know where you're going to go work on a on on a giant studio film like Starman and then and then jump to after school special? Is it just that you love filming and you love shooting and you want to keep doing it? Yeah, you just said what I like. <laughs> no, I, I you know I, I I always tell people I never spent one day working in the movie business. I never worked one day in the movie business. That's pretty sweet because I loved every every moment of it. The thing I like about my career is I got to work with some people that I would never want to work with again, mm-hmm. but they taught me something. Not to work with them and other things. That and, <laughs> and you could see people that were so intent on doing what they wanted to do that they, you know, that's the thing that you, you asked about Joe Sargent. Uh, when you meet people like Joe Sargent and you meet people like John Carpenter and, and Zemeckis and, and, and that group, they didn't get where they got by being stupid. And there are people that get opportunities and because they got the, the, the credit of being director, they don't, they, they're not gonna take anybody's uh, advice on anything. Well, uh, so uh, before we go, there's just one other director I kinda wanna talk to you about working with and that's uh, David Fincher and you did Ariel's on Seven and even though he'd already made Alien 3, like Seven really established him as a director. Did you do other other second unit stuff before the aerials, or is it just the aerials kind of going on during the climax of the movie, like towards the end? You mean for him? Yeah. No. Uh, someone suggested me to him, and he brought me in for an interview, 
And he told me the first shot that he wanted couldn't be done from the mount that I was used to working with. And he said uh, he wanted a straight down shot. Well, in, in the Tyler mount, you sat in the doorway with your feet out on a, on a uh, it had a little thing for your feet to rest yeah. on. And you put a windshield here and you were actually outside the, the, the helicopter. You're like a gunner almost. Yeah. And he wanted that shot that everybody wants of New York where you're looking straight down going over the buildings and stuff. He yeah. wanted it in L.A. Well, if I look straight down, I would see Don Morgan's feet and the skid gear because I'm not in the front where those mounts that, you know, the, the ball mounts could, could mm -hmm. do those shots. So I told him that I thought I wasn't the guy for the job. What was interesting about him is he said, you came highly recommended. And I said, but I don't, I don't work with the equipment that you, you need to do this with. And so he thanked me for coming in, and I went home, and I got a call about a few days later, and they said, show up at 4 a.m., and they told me what place to show up at, which was, you know, a parking lot with a helicopter sitting there. And it had the, the ball mount, which I wasn't, that was our competition, and I, I didn't work with that. And I show up, and I, I, I asked his secretary, I said, are you sure he wants me there? Yes, he said he wanted you there to be the DP. And they would have an operator do that. I said, okay. So I, I went there, and they did all that stuff straight down. And we did a few shots around town. And then he used, you know, the shot on the desert where they go like this and yeah, yeah. we land. He had the Tyler mount for that stuff. So I went to the desert, and he's quite a guy. Yeah, yeah. He's quite a guy. He wanted me to, because the, sh the shot was, there's a guy looking out the helicopter door looking for these people. And he's scanning and he lands right on him. Well, when you're up in a helicopter and you have no buildings, no fences, nothing but ground, and you whip by and he wanted me to stop dead on him. Well, I went by him. I stopped short of it. And I, he's going, who the hell told you you were an operator? Jesus Christ. You know, and he's cussing at me. And, really? And the third or fourth one, I landed right on him. And he goes, you're brilliant. <laughs> so you were either brilliant or you were an asshole, you know. So... But Aren't it, we all? He was he was fun to work with, and we did a lot of uh, fun stuff with with uh, both mount. And, and uh, had you used that other mount before? No. So you just kind of figured it out on the day. Well, no. All I had to do was figure the exposures. I didn't have to. Uh, I didn't work with it because it was it was like, oh, you can drive a car. Why couldn't you fly this airplane? You know, it's just two different things. Yeah, yeah. So they had their operator and their crew put it together, and I would give them the exposures. So what do you think of like doing aerials in this in the era of drones now that like everybody can, you know, buy a drone for $1,200 and shoot outrageous aerials everywhere and, and you're seeing them pop up in really low budget stuff all the time? Well, it's like anything else that's new. I mean, it's like asking, uh, what do you think about digital over film? You know, I, I, I my whole career was film mm -hmm. and I've shot some digital. And Bill Fraker, you know who that Bill Fraker was? Yeah. Bill Fraker said... Uh, I don't give a goddamn whether they shoot it on string or toilet paper or whatever. It's got to be lit and it's got to be, you know, conform a shot. Yeah. And, and uh, it's the same old, same old. Do I like digital as much as film? I like it because it's here. Yeah, yeah. And and that's uh, what's around. And I just shot a, a, a short for a girl, uh, a little Chinese gal that uh, was going to uh, New York Academy. Oh, my New God, York really? Academy. Yeah, yeah. She came to a, a guy that was a producer who I worked with for years. He was my gaffer for years. And she said, I want to do this little film. How much do you think it'll cost? And he came up, he doesn't do crap. He doesn't just go out without a, without <laughs> yeah. a, uh, getting permission. And, and, and he uh, does it all by the book. Yeah. And he told her that it was going to cost 
about $150,000 to shoot her short. And it ended up costing 135,000. Whoa. And she showed he showed him my reel and some other guys reels and she said, "I'd like I'd like to use Don." So we we did this great little film. What's it called? It's called A Red House and it was uh, 1935 China and it was uh, a house of prostitution and they used to bring poor families would bring their daughters in and sell them to house of prostitutions and the only way they could get them back was double the money that they got for them. So they never got their babies back or their young daughters back. And they, they would raise them in, in the house of prostitution. And we had these gorgeous Chinese women, and they found a uh, house that they were going to tear down with a beautiful staircase. And he got a really good production designer to come in and make a china. Mm-hmm. And it, it looked gorgeous, and it was crap. I mean, you, you were breathing. I think we all got stage four <laughs> cancer working there, but, <laughs> but it, was, it was gorgeous. Uh, they bring in and sell this little girl. And they tell this beautiful prostitute that she's got to uh, help raise this girl. And she said, that's for older women, not me. And this this prostitute had been saving money for 14 years to try to buy herself free because she'd get a cut out of, Mm -hmm. you know, everything she did. And uh, we didn't show sex. We showed, we implied, you know, you could see just enough to know what was going on. And it was all in uh, Mandarin, so we didn't understand anything. (laughs) I I said, I'm glad I'm the cameraman and not the boom operator. You know, who the hell do you go to? But anyway, we we shot this film, and it's won quite a few uh, different festivals, and it's, it's really gorgeous. That's sweet. I'll have to show it to you. I'd love to see it. Yeah, it's, it's really a pretty piece. Well, um, I think that's a great place to, to leave it. Uh, do you have a website or anything where, uh, or Instagram or anything where people can find you online? Yeah, Donald M. Morgan, ASC.com. So everybody go check that out. Thank you so much, Don, for coming out here. We really appreciate it. Good. Great stuff. So that was Don Morgan. Thank you so much, Don, for coming in. And thank you for your patience because it's, uh, I think that that might be one of the last interviews from before I became a dad. I know that there's at least two more that we haven't uh, cut yet. Yeah, that's, uh, we're we're getting to the end. So, hey, Ben, uh, bill paying time. All right. How are we going to pay the bills today? We're going to pay the the bills by talking about uh, one of our favorite sponsors. Well, you know, we, our our only sponsor. No, it's not our only sponsor. Hot Rod Cameras is also the a sponsor oh, of the show. I, I take it for granted. Yeah, you totally take it for granted because we're sitting in Hot Rod Cameras, and Hot Rod Cameras is paying all our hosting bills and everything else like that. But thanks, Hot Rod Cameras. Yeah, thanks, Hot Rod Cameras. Go go support Hot Rod Cameras. Buy some bongo ties. Or, I'm, I'm actually going to buy a thing from Hot Rod Cameras tonight. So ooh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, the other thing that we were going to talk about here, the thing for Ari, uh, you can also buy at Hot Rod Cameras. They're making a fantastically amazing new lighting product uh they call it the orbiter and the orbiter is basically got the whole town abuzz right now it is a super super powerful rgb light that is a hard light and it's in a small form factor and uh i almost don't feel like i can do it justice because some of the best uh details or certainly the details like price haven't been revealed yet but we're going to set up a uh, a pre-order here for the people who know they have to have it and if you watch the demonstration or keynote video uh, same same day basically as like the you know the iPhone Pro announcement well uh Airy also announced this incredible new light which uh it says their their headline is what's new everything and it's really kind of true it is a uh powerhouse light that gives you tons and tons of functionality in a relatively small form factor. So like what are some of the functionalities that it has that other lights would not have had previously? I'm glad you asked that. 
it is an ultra bright, tunable, and directional LED fixture from Airy. Basically, it has changeable optics, which are the, the core innovation, and a wide variety of optics to choose from. Uh, so you can completely change the shape and qualities of your beam. Mm-hmm. They have what almost looks like a lens mount on the front, which allows you to quickly switch between one and the other, and it gives you different beam uh, widths. And uh, it starts off with a 15, a 25, and a 35, but other ones will be available in the future. Uh, it's also available as an open face, which I got to imagine is just going to be like a boom, a huge amount of light as an open face. Plus, it's got uh, light domes and light banks. It's got a six-color engine, so you can do all the usual sort of red, green, blue, but they also add in amber and cyan. And which, plaid. You can do plaid. You could, you could probably do plaid if you so deci- decided to, but... It's also got an uh, interface for their new app that we've talked about on the show before, plus all kinds of like wireless connectivity. It is a, a pretty phenomenal functional light that uh, is filled with a dimming system and all of these sort of stuff that you're used to in a sky panel, which gives you all of these color capabilities, including uh, hue saturation and RGB and you name it. That's interesting. Yeah. You know what would be interesting to do? I remember seeing uh, it was an illustration of like all the things that the smartphone has replaced. And it was like, you know, a stills camera and a video camera and a stereo system and like flashlight. All- yeah, flashlight, calculator, like all all these things that the smartphone, address book, uh, file of facts, all those things. It would be interesting to do that with this light and be like, here's what it would have taken to replicate all the things this light does. And so it'd be, you know, like a spotlight and a and a wide light and a pile of gels and a dimming board and like, you know. It's kind of like a phone a little bit. They put a three-axis accelerometer in there, which is actually measuring the pan, the tilt and roll of the fixture. Mm-hmm. It's got a, a ambient light sensor so you can understand like what the color is of the light around this light. It's got heat sensors. It's got a magnetometer, uh, which will uh, indicate the direction the fixture is pointing in the real world. It's like it's, it's doing a lot of... I wonder if of- like some of that's also so that it, it like is it recording all that metadata so that later you could pull it up if you were trying to recreate this shot in CG or you were trying to add something in CG? Uh, I believe there is some information that you can store and you can then control uh, for matching via like some sort of remote. And they, they do have a removable remote control panel that you can access all these functionalities via a wire if you so desire. So how many of these lights would it take to do a really good poor man's process and program it so that you could just like replicate poor man's process all day long? Well, I don't think it's going to pan or tilt itself. Oh, so, okay. uh, but uh, at least not not that I can tell, but who knows? The people at area, it wouldn't surprise me what they're working on next. All right. All right. So, uh, Ari, get on my poor man's process idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's all kinds of other stuff in poor man's process land now too, which is incredible. These LED walls. Have you seen yeah. any of that? Uh, uh, yes, I have actually. All right. Well, that'll that'll be a future uh, that'll be a future short end. And now short ends. So, so Ben, what's your your short end? Uh, I have a super weird short end, but I think it's funny and. Uh, I think people will find it interesting. Interesting, maybe. Um, I, uh, as I have told you, I sometimes moonlight as uh, an editor on a freelancing site. And so I get some interesting gigs. And recently, uh, one of my gigs was uh, a tech startup uh, had a giant montage of happy birthdays that they wanted to pay someone to string together. So I'm going through it, and it's mostly people who work for the company, and then there's Anthony Scaramucci. Hmm. And I'm like, the mooch knows this guy? What the hell? But at the bottom of the frame, which uh, they asked me to crop out, 
it says Cameo. And I'm like, what the hell is Cameo? So I look it up online, Cameo.com, I think. And it's a place where you can go to get, you can pay celebrities. Uh, and to, to do a cameo for it? To do a, on their phone. Whoa. To film themselves making a personal message to you. And uh, if you go there, it's kind of shocking. So, for instance, if you wanted the mooch to give you a personal birthday greeting, 100 bucks. Wow. Um, and I was looking through it. It seems like they top out at $500. And those are like really big celebrities, $500. But like Gilbert Gottfried, who I would actually put on my, uh, you know, if I were doing a birthday video for myself, which I don't know what would make me do that. Gilbert Gottfried was like 150 bucks. Now you got to no. figure... Gilbert Gottfried can sit around and like bang these out 10 in a day and it's not, you know, bad living if he gets 10 requests in a day. But it was it was a little shocking that this is what we've gotten to is that celebrities have a 4K smartphone in their pocket or an HD smartphone in their pocket and they will literally for uh 150 bucks. 150 it's, bucks. It's like Fiverr, but it's with celebrities and, and, so, and it's, some uh, of them are surprising and surprisingly inexpensive. Lance Bass of NSync I see here is 199. Yeah, see? Like you I, I encourage anyone on here uh you can look for uh, up comedians and actors and sports figures. Randy Couture, former MMA fighter, 75 bucks. So uh yeah, I just thought it was it was uh, fucking banana pants that I'm like going through all these people is like happy birthday blah 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 and then the mooch and it's like this is something that anyone can do Corey Feldman's on there he's one of the more expensive ones yeah I know I know I had, I had lunch with Corey Feldman once long story <laughs> I, I'd like to hear that story just uh, just me and Corey oh all right uh, oh Katie Sackoff yeah you're right Gary Busey oh my god that's awesome. How much is Gary Busey? He's 350 bucks. But I mean, like, that's worth 350 bucks. Tony Hawk is on here, too. Yeah. Fantastic. So uh, so uh, if you're a celebrity listening to the sound of my voice, get on it. And for the rest of us, uh, support Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, my gosh. The And John Lovitz. Yeah, John Lovitz. He, okay, wait a second. John Lovitz, Gary Busey, and Gilbert Gottfried are all on here. I have pitched you my television show idea with the three of them, haven't I? No. Oh, oh, oh it's really good. We'll have to we'll have to do it some other time. But yes, uh, the three of them are on here. I, I swear. I, I think that that's the sign of the end of Peak TV when we get a Gilbert <laughs> Gottfried, Gary Busey, John Lovitz television series. It'll be great. It'll be so good. I, I, I wonder if you could get John Lovitz to do a cameo for you and do his Harvey Firestein impersonation as the cameo. I bet he would. I wonder if you can ask for special stuff. I see like I was like okay for 150 bucks can I get Gilbert Gottfried to just do my outgoing message on my voicemail because I would totally do that you can get uh, Jose Canseco you can get uh, yeah Buster Douglas you can get Stormy Daniels <laughs> so <laughs> holy crap it's a uh, it's it's a veritable who's who amazing it, yeah and it's not all like has been no nothing nobody's it's, not at all it's a lot of people who are you know Cisco who's that he did the thong song is that guy Oh. Really? Okay. Totally to flew past you there. So it did, sorry. All right. Billy like, like Billy Baldwin's on here. Two hundred yeah. bucks. Anyway, Ilya. So go through <laughs> Dennis ca- Rodman. Go through Cameo, everybody. Anyway, so Ilya, what is your short end? Oh man, my short end. Uh okay, so you made this comment when you walked in here. There's a very fancy lens sitting on the table. It's super fancy. It's 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 rather big actually. It's uh it's cause it's like a thirty five millimeter lens, I wanna say. It and is. 
and it's probably the size of like a big gulp. Yeah, uh, well, maybe not quite as big as a, maybe just the regular gulp, and not one of those other gulps. But uh, yeah, this is a Tokina lens, and Tokina is actually one of the most interesting lens companies right now. They are making truly super premium lenses at sort of bargain prices. Like that lens in front of you actually is only around forty five hundred dollars. And this isn't me joking. When I saw that lens, I was like, oh, I bet that lens is more expensive than my house because I'm used to seeing a lens like that, and I actually don't live in a twenty thousand dollar house. No, but. No, yeah. But <laughs> you I, live in Los Angeles. Your house is probably getting close to a million dollars. But so. <laughs> but I am used to seeing a lens that's that size and assuming like if you would have said, no, that lens is fifty thousand dollars, I would have believed you. You would not have been surprised. And and I wish I wish our listeners could could see the lens, but I'm gonna hold it up and here's the sound it makes. I'm I'm literally holding it up to the mic. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes a it makes a, a completely no, no silent, sound. No sound. But if you hold it up to your ear, you can hear the sound <laughs> of Philip Toland. Anyway. No, Philip Toland? Greg, Greg, Greg Tolan. Tolan. Oh, oh my God. God. Oh, wow. I, this is the Cinematography Podcast, and you have just... I just, got, I just got fired. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, I, I think everybody. you got to stand in a corner now. I'm going to so. go <laughs> stand Greg Toland. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I'm sorry. I was trying to sound smart, and it did exactly the opposite, and I think we should leave that in to make me sound as dumb as possible. Well, you know, I, I've told everyone that you're like the biggest cinematography nerd I know, and now I have to retract that statement because... Uh, because <laughs> Philip Tolan. <laughs> Sorry, I, who's the Philip that I'm I'm conflating with? Him? Oh my goodness, I don't know. Uh, a, a, anyway, so uh, so Ben, the, my short end is actually that uh, bargain super premium lens maker Tokina uh, has come up with another lens, which is to be fair, double the price of that. So it's $9,000, but still yeah. a far cry from any others. It's a 135 millimeter lens that is a T1.5 and it is bananas. It is a super cool, what's, super what's amazing the speed lens. What's of this lens? Oh, T1.5. This is a 1.5 as well. Yeah, these are about the fastest lenses that you can buy that look great and wide open. And it's and relatively light. Too, relatively for, light. For a big PL mount lens. Like this is a professional lens that you would see on a real film set. This isn't some crap that you'd have in your 5D kit. I, I no, will t- no offense to 5D kits. No, I love my 5D no. kit. This is not a lens I would hoist. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's a little bit bigger than than typical, but it actually covers the Alexa sixty five. It is, uh, it's sort of like the lens to end all lenses. In fact, uh, Tokina was very much an OEM. They were a manufacturer for a lot of the other major lens companies before getting into cinema. And I'll tell you what's interesting now is that there's quite a few other companies out there who are buying these lenses putting their own spin on it, putting their own name on it, and marking it way up because, frankly, they're probably undervalued. telling people that we should just do that? <laughs> it's, it's big work to do that. It's a lot of work, and, you know, there's a reason they, they mark them up. But for those people out there with, you know, 20, 20 to $35,000, sort of in that range, you can get yourself a really nice set of lenses, and with that new 135 coming, that lens scent grows to 7, which is a super respectable size, and I know they have more coming. So uh, you will not be surprised when we, in the future, talk to major cinematographers, major people who are directing and shooting projects with these Tokina lenses. They are, they are going to be a, a thing. Here. You know, we don't really ask people what lenses they like to shoot well, on. Sometimes they mention it, but yeah, it's true. We don't always ask them. We can start asking them if you want. I think they'd be happy Just to talk throw about that it. in there. Yeah, sure. What lens? Hey, what lens do you shoot that on? You, you know, that this actually reminds me of something, though. I remember being at a, a Sundance Q&A many, many years ago, being somewhere in the back of the audience, and someone asked about, oh, what camera and lenses did you shoot this on? And the woman in front of me, I think she was wearing a fur coat, said audibly, very loud to all the people around her, who cares? 
And I think that's really true. For most people out there, the technical portion of this industry means nothing. They are there for the story. They're there for the characters, they're there for whatever. But there is a whole other part of the world that is involved in the technical side, in the actual making of these things. And uh, sometimes that information is hard to find. That information is not always out there. If you don't talk to a cinematographer or a filmmaker, you may not be able to find it because that is not something that's typically covered by the mainstream media. You have to. Well, be. I mean, it's 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 wonkish inside baseball kind of information. It's true. And I mean, like you can American cinematographer is easy to easy enough to find. I, I think that people obviously you and I wouldn't be here doing this if we didn't think that this was important stuff uh in 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 how a movie is constructed because it's like uh movies don't shoot themselves movies like lenses have uh, real impacts on things and you know even if you were to say like you're going to shoot on this 35 millimeter tokina that i'm looking on looking at or if you were to shoot with uh, a 35 millimeter cook it would look different i mean like uh maybe not so different that the to, average to, person no would, to the lay audience they they probably won't see a difference at all to the the trained people there might be a lot of differences well and, and this actually gets to an argument that i an ongoing argument i've had with uh someone whose name i won't mention because i think he's wrong but <laughs> and probably listening i doubt it oh, okay um but this one person like tends to say that he tends to undercut craft and say that like that kind of stuff is kind of filmmaker vanity and that most people can't tell the difference but like when you when you're talking to a real cinematographer like Don Morgan who we just spoke with or you know uh, Checo Varese or any of any of the Rachel Morrison any of these people like they're not being hired because they see things the way 99% of the audience sees them they see things the way a, a fucking cinematographer sees them and and to them that's part of the difference. Like they want a lens that does exactly what they want, not a lens that does 85% of what they want. Yeah. Not to mention that some lenses can perform better in certain situations. Some lenses are optimized to be shot wide open. Other, I mean, here's the thing. You're, you're, uh, you're nifty 50, your your hundred dollar, you know, Canon lens. Sure. You can make it look pretty good if you stop it down and you're not really doing too much to make it work hard. It really falls apart when you have to force it to work hard. That's the big difference is which lenses. It's the same thing with like professional auto racing. Sure. You could get a pretty good performance out of, you know, your uh, stock GTR off the uh, off the street. You've completely left my sphere. Okay, sorry. Well, okay, I was trying to make an analogy. But But then you put it in you put it into like a real race scenario against a real race car. And it's not the same thing anymore. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the reason that you hire the kinds of people that we regularly talk to on this show is because they understand the difference or they see the difference. And in some cases it might be like they just need a, they need a lens that that's light because they're going to be doing like really fast handheld stuff. A hundred percent. So they might need that or, you know, whatever it is, or it needs to be weighted a certain way. I remember getting into an argument with a friend of mine in probably 2000 who was, it was the dawn of DV. And this person was explaining to me, that you know film cameras were going to go away and that you're going to be able to hold something in the palm of your hand that was good enough to make a movie now in certain instances you could say well a few movies have been shot on the iphone like tangerine and unsane steven soderbergh's unsane you know yes you could make a movie on the iphone no it doesn't look the same as as a movie that's shot with with real stuff and what i said at the time and i would and i and I, i would stake everything i know on it is the thing that never gets cheap is precision optics uh, good, good glass is never cheap. Boy, I, and I'll say just because you can do these things doesn't necessarily mean you should. I mean, 
I, I think it's wonderful that that uh, people want to experiment and to to go down this path. And sure, yes, you know, good optics are are, are very important, but um, there is a certain percentage of your audience that always is paying attention and always does care. And I will say that you know the real arbiter, the person who is there to protect the integrity of what's happening is the cinematographer. That's sort of their that's job. That's their job. Yeah, that's and and they have really really strong opinions because they know it needs to be a certain way and. Uh, ultimately a lot of this stuff is art, but some of it is technology. And if you can't master being a plumber and an artist, you're not going to have a very good looking movie. I think so. when you write a book about cinematography, you need to, it needs to be called the plumber and the artist. Mm, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm stealing that. I think, well, yeah. You're not stealing it because it's what you say all the time. <laughs> okay. Well, Hey Ben, I think that just about wraps it up uh, for us. Well, where can people find you? At jefftoland.com. Oh, no, now it's Jeff Toland. Yeah, huh? I'm just going <laughs> to keep changing it up. Oh my God. Bob Toland, um, <laughs> spinning in his grave right now. Uh, cool. Anyway, um, <laughs> you can find me at BenRockOnline.com. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Neptune Salad, and I'm on Instagram at Benjamin underscore Rock. Because as I have said, I didn't realize that this Instagram thing was going to really take off. Uh, you can find me over at HotRodCameras.com. You can find me on the interwebs at Ilya Friedman. And uh, hey, let's thank some people. Let's let's start by thanking Alana Cody, the one who makes all of this happen. That's right. She's probably listening to uh, the sound of our voices right now going damn straight. And she's like, who Toland Ben? Yeah. Go, go fuck yourself. <laughs> uh, we'd like to thank our fine editors. That's right. Ben and Abby, thank you very much for making us sound halfway, halfway. Well, you can't make Ben sound any smarter. Not, after not, his, you can't after make his. me sound any dumber after I got <laughs> Greg Tolan's name wrong. Just just steer right into how stupid I am. Whew. Okay. And That's then we rough. should probably thank uh, Kay Zalatracci. Who's not listening right now. Nope. Um, but uh, you can find all of his music at musicbykays.com. Uh, you should hit him up, uh, uh, send him a comment, tell him that you heard uh, his music on our podcast and that it's amazing. Ask him for directing samples. Ask him for color correcting samples. Ask him for CGI samples. And if you're listening to the sound of my Ask voice right now. Ask him for producing samples? Producing how, do you, how do you have a producing mm, sample? I have no idea. I don't know. Well, hey, if you'd like a Hot Rod Cameras t-shirt, uh, be sure to come and visit us at the shop here. Tell us that you've been listening to the podcast, and I think we've got a couple of XL sizes left, 2X, 3X. But yeah, we Are you calling our listeners fat? No, I think that's just the only sizes we have left. It's actually been fairly popular. People have been coming in and taking they in have? Oh, half a dozen or so. Yeah, so. That's pretty good. So come in and demand from Ilya. Demand your t-shirt. <sighs> be, be super belligerent. Well, it might be a little bit large, since we're running out of sizes. Although we do have a bunch of women's shirts. So, yeah, if you're a woman and you're coming here, want a woman's shirt, yeah, definitely uh, come on in. We got we still got some of those. Cool. Well, anyway, so we will see you on episode 47 when I mispronounce the name of another famous cinematographer. <laughs> yes, you will. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.